Welcome to Farming Eternal, an eternal podcast for farmers, hosted by me, Patrick, or Potomaro, and Hats on Lamps. How's it going, Hats? It's going great. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. So it's episode 69. For those of you turning, tuning in for the first time, we are a draft-focused podcast. Our goal is to help you and me, mostly me, get better at draft. We get into the nitty-gritty of the drafting process with a little meta-analysis and play tips thrown in. So we have an exciting show this week, so I won't bury the lead. Uh, we have a special guest, uh, Shab, who's been writing a lot of articles for Eternal War Cry on draft, here for the show. So welcome, Shab. Hey, uh, I'm really excited to be here, really excited uh, to talk about Limited, so thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. So I want everyone to buckle up, because I think we're in here for the long haul, as we are going to discuss <laughs> our day two performances from the draft championship. This we will probably take a while. This is a surprise. <laughs> no, no, I'm just kidding, because we all bombed it really quickly. So yeah. we had to scrap that topic and uh, scramble for a new one, which is uh, hopefully will be more interesting than our day two, drafting the hard way. Right? Anyone? Yeah, drafting the hard way. This is uh, the title of one of uh, Shab's recent uh, drafting articles uh, for Eternal Warcry. Uh, and I think there's a lot there to talk about, so I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. So uh, let's begin with how our draft weeks have gone. So, Shab, since uh, you usually aren't on the show as a guest, uh, how was your draft week? Uh, pretty horrendous, honestly. <laughs> um, I only play a couple days a week um, because I cannot both parent and play eternal i parent very suboptimally if i'm playing eternal so um i just don't play eternal at all while i have my kids so i only play a couple of days a week and i played this morning because i really wanted to get some reps in uh for today's show and i think i went three and nine in my last 12 games or something like that and i was like all right it's time to uh time to take a break so I haven't had great results in my recent games. Um, I do think that there were some valuable lessons to be learned um, from my losses this morning. So I'm happy to to talk about some of those. Um, so my draft week hasn't hasn't gone great, but I think some of that is is variance, and um, yeah, probably some of it is bad decisions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, did you want to mention anything specifically, or did you want to? Um, did you want to yeah. save that for later in the show? What, what's 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 an insight or two? So I think it's really um, important to evaluate your losses. Um, I think it's important to evaluate your wins too. But this is really really difficult to do, especially after hard losses when you're not really thinking clearly, um, and so. I went 0-3 with a deck that I thought was good, and then I went 0-3 with another deck that I thought was good, um, and then 3-3 three and three with a deck that I thought was good. <clears throat> so I looked back on some, some of my losses to see, like, you know, what has happened. Um, because sometimes you keep a hand with only one of your colors, and if you never draw that second one, it's a little bit useful to go and look at your deck list. Because if you have 11 of your second source and you didn't draw one, you got unlucky. But if you have like seven or six and you didn't draw one, well, that's that's just kind of what you signed up for. So I looked at some of my losses and three of them really stood out because one of them was just straight, you know, got unlucky. My opponent gave played the four four that gives the top unit of your deck charge. Um, mm -hmm. 
which hit Siege Train, which they drew the wow. next turn. Those games were like, it was fine that it hit Siege Train. Like, it, if I had dodged it for like a turn, you know, if they had drawn a power, a spell, anything for just that turn, like I could have just ignored it for the rest of the game. But that didn't happen. And so I lost that game. It, you know, happens. Um, I lost another game to uh, a 10 10 Makdo. I think that's named the uh, eight power. It's usually a five five. Revenge mm-hmm. never dies, and you game. Um, yeah, so I I lost a game where I had like Marizo on board, and I had Omen Scarworm, and I had this huge board, and I had my you know I had metal in hand, and my opponent dead as long as they didn't get their ten ten Makdo off their destiny next turn, you know, which they did, and uh, I lost that game because I just wrote an entire article about how the rares don't matter as much as you think they do and i just lost this game to a card that says like literally you cannot beat me yeah. <laughs> so um, so i you know chalk that one up to loss to uh to bad luck but then i lost this other game and the reason that i want to talk about my losses this morning is because i think it's really important um to use your time wisely you know when you're thinking like about your games that day because it's really easy to focus on the games where you got horrendously unlucky mm-hmm. um and I and I haven't been thinking about those games, to be honest, because that's that's a part of my game that I'm still working on. Um, but I lost this other game, and this is the one that I'm going to be thinking about for weeks because this is the one where I think there's an opportunity to learn something. Like those other two games, I think I put myself in a really good position to win, and it just didn't work out that time. And those games, you just have to accept and kind of forget about and move on from. Um, but I lost another game where my opponent was at three and I was at 11 and we had played a really long game. So um, the board state wasn't like developing. It was we're both drawing cards off the top of their deck and they have uh, the six, seven, the grun that when it blocks, it gets stunned. And I have a two, three sand tornado and two creatures and they attack me with this grun, which is basically a free attack because if they leave it back to block, it's just going to get stunned. So their best way to win the game is to attack me with this grunt. Um, and so they do. And I think, like, do I block with one of these one ones? And this was my decision was, do I block with one of these one ones and stay at 11? Or do I go to five and keep my creatures and my opponents at three? And so all of my creatures at this point, like, it's not just a throwaway chump block. It is a very important, valuable creature on the battlefield. And so I think really hard about this decision. And I think about everything else I have in my deck. It's really late in the game. I have three more sigils. The the type of deck that they're playing, I don't think they have any way to push through damage, like a trick or anything like that. Whatever they drew off the top of their deck is either a removal spell, which is bad against my small creatures, or it's a a unit of some kind. Um, And most of the things that I have left in my deck, I have two disappears. I have mostly units. Um, So long story short, I decide not to block. I go to five. Um, They play a Sky Serpent, the 3-3 Flyer. Now I'm like, okay, well, I'm almost dead. This did not work out well. I draw the um, the three one that makes a torch when it dies. And I think, perfect. So no matter what, like I can attack next turn and deal them three or, um, <clears throat> or they can block and then I can torch them. Like all I have to do is fade this one turn. They draw the car- their card. They play an ancient serpent, get levitate from their, from their void, give their grunt flying, kill me. So... <sighs> No way to know that that three damage is sitting on the top of my deck. And if I block there, I win. And there's a lot of variables. You know, all the cards I'd seen in my opponent's deck up to that point, all the cards I knew that I had in my deck at that point. 
And so that's the decision that I'm going to be thinking about a lot. I think that I gave that I got unlucky and gave myself an opportunity to get unlucky. Um, and I think sometimes people realize, you know, they really remember the times where they get unlucky and don't consider that they gave themselves an opportunity to get unlucky. Um, and so that's, that's why I'll be thinking about that loss for a long time and where I'm at in my game right now is trying to forget those like really just losses that I couldn't do anything about and made good decisions and didn't go my way. Um, and really focus in on not blocking that six, seven. So focus on the decisions okay. that I made and just the results. Uh, well, I think that in, especially in this case, there is a general insight that you can have, which is that, um, like, uh, it, unless you have a specific purpose for the one, one that you, uh, didn't, block with and kept alive then in general keeping uh protecting your life total um from any kind of evasive you know threat is probably more important than you know keeping your board uh keeping a one one on the board right like was there did you have a plan for doing that last three damage that involved the one one that you didn't block with so i figured most of the things um that <clears throat> I figured so most of the things that I draw because again my opponent's at three and so I figured yep. if I chump block this turn how basically how do I win the game then if I chump right. this turn and I chump next turn like what what then is my plan to actually win and so I figured if let's say they attack me with the ground I go to five um, they play a creature I can still get maybe two damage, you know, if I can get two damage through or one damage through, I can then have like two block or something. Um, I had two disappears in my deck in case what they played was a blocker. Um, I'm not saying at all that my decision was correct because I'm not at all convinced that it was. Um, but, and it's, it's because one of the other things that I'm, that I'm working on, um, and so it was kind of these two conflicting things, is that sometimes it's really scary to like go to one or to... Um, you know, to be dead to whatever your opponent draws, but that is your best chance to win. And so that's another thing that I'm kind of, that I'm working on in my own like personal game. Like, how do I win? Like, is this my best chance to win, uh, to chump block here? Um, yeah, that's always going to be, you know, that's always going to be a hard decision. Um, yeah. cause you know, I've had the same thing happen many times where there's times where it's like, well, I really don't think I'm going to win this game. If I if my board starts getting reduced, like my only chance is to is is to uh, is to make some sort of alpha strike at some point and surprise win. Yeah. Um, and uh, and and sometimes sometimes you're just playing the odds. Um, and also knowing your deck and what you're likely to draw, of course, is is very important in those situations. And that's one of the hardest things, especially uh, if you don't have as much experience drafting eternal specifically is being aware of your deck and what it's capable of doing on your next draw and how likely you are to to be able to do one of those things i think that's one of the very hardest things is to be is to really know what's in your deck especially if you don't play with any sort of like you know there's no uh if you don't have like a waystone like uh list of your cards where you know what you haven't played yet because i don't think that exists for eternal for one thing but also uh i probably wouldn't play with it even if it did exist some sort of software that helped um but i i have had games where i am 
so awake and alert and very aware of the cards that I'm likely to draw and it makes a difference and it sure feels like a superpower when that's going on. <laughs> but it's yeah. also yeah, one it's, of the hardest it, skills. It's it, it's interesting because I feel like this this story is making me feel like maybe the, the worst player on the podcast. Because... Um, <laughs> But but in sort of, I think, uh, illustrative way in the sense that, like, my view of the situation, because I'm not good enough at the game, like, I have almost no idea what's in my deck <laughs> once I'm playing the game. I just, like, it's too many cards, I can't remember it. But one of the things I've learned, because I never have any idea of what cards are in my deck is I'm I'm very daring with my life total. Like in that situation Shab was describing, I never block. Because for me, having units on board gives me a higher chance of winning because it's more likely there's I'm going to draw something or have a card that will win if I have stuff on the board. You know what I mean? And I... I because I'm not good enough to be able to like internalize like my deck list, you know, I can give you a general idea of like my outs, for example, when I'm playing a game, but like, there's so many games where when I lose, I like look back at, and I'm like, Oh, I had no chance of winning that game. And then I like check the rest of my draws and I'm like, Oh, actually these two cards here would have won the game. Or when you get that lucky top deck, when you're like, Oh, there's literally 0% chance I'm going to win this game. And then you flip a card and you're like, oh, huh, that wins the game. And so, like, <laughs> because, because of my... What a, what a happy coincidence. That's yeah. my deck. And I wanted to win. Great. <laughs> but because of my play level, I try... I'm very daring with my life total and try to keep control of the board or have as many units to sort of optimize my chance of winning in those situations. Um, I remember there was a game that you and I were playing together. Um, uh, we had, we drafted together and we were sort of like playing and, and commenting. Uh, and we were up against an opponent who was being very aggressive and like attacked with some big unit. Uh, and uh, we, we had the option to either chump block that unit or to take damage and go to like three or two or something like that. Um, and I immediately said, oh, we've got to block this. And you re and you responded, no, no, we take this because then we can attack because we can kill for lethal in a couple of turns. And I, and and it was interesting that that was my immediate instinct. And that was also your immediate instinct, because it's exactly what we're saying right now, where I'm often looking to preserve my life total because I assume that my opponents have a plan to kill me. And you are max and your instinct is to hope that your deck gives you the opportunity to kill them. And, you know, probably the optimal play depends on the game and maybe is somewhere in the middle. But uh, it, it just reminds me of that because that's definitely consistently our approaches to the game. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, and, and this, is, this is getting almost off topic now. But, like, in Discord, we recently... Um, Shab has joined the Discord and we opened up a section so people can come um, to the Discord to talk about his articles and talk about drafts. So not only was it the best place to talk draft, it's the now bestest place to talk draft. 
but um, <laughs> we've leveled with, up. <laughs> yeah, with that pl- with that plug aside, um, we were sort of talking about uh, quadrant theory uh, and the different phases of the game, and someone brought up um, how a long time ago on the podcast we kind of talked about racing and sort of wanting to add that to the quadrant theory in a way that you should think about cards as whether they're good in races. And um, Shab and another person were kind of talking about how they didn't think that. And Shab, let me put words in your mouth here. Um, uh, They didn't think that because really you shouldn't be in races very often because one person, you know, from an objective view, one person is either winning and therefore should be initiating the race or the other person or they're losing and shouldn't be initiating the race. So races shouldn't actually be that common of a situation. And it was the, the whole discussion was kind of interesting for me because just with my play style, I'm like constantly, I find myself constantly in races and sort of forcing races. And this sort of situation is a good example of that where I'm I'm much more willing to let my life total get low and sort of force the issue of one of us is going to win this game soon and you know you know let's lay our cards on the table and figure out who's that, who that's going to be and um it's just it's hard you know I always I always have trouble figuring out whether that's just like a total leak in my play and it's sort of masking in a inability to be good at the game or whether it's just like playing to a play style that I'm comfortable with you know it's kind of like drafting with preferences where you draft decks that sort of fit your play style and this is weirdly like maybe I also I play decks and draft decks to fit a play style and it's I you know it's hard to know if what's well I think that uh I think that there's there's games where it's correct to be aggressive and there's de- and there's games where it's correct to be more defensive and knowing when you're supposed to be the aggressor and when you're supposed to be trying to control the game is like one of the more subtle and advanced skills to develop. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't think it's easy and often a game can be won or lost. Well, not often, but sometimes. Uh, sometimes a game can be won or lost by a player realizing that the game has shifted a turn earlier than their opponent realizes it. There's, yeah. there, I, I just had a very controlling slow deck that only went like four or five wins, but mo- it, it was so slow that there were two games where I went down to zero cards in my deck, but still won because mm-hmm. I had planned the next three turns of my draws to be able to 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 break down my opponent's defense and finally win on the exact turn when I needed to. <laughs> yeah. And that was because like there I I I I maybe a couple of turns before my opponent realized what was happening and how the game was going to be won. And you know, I was up against players. I was up against relatively inexperienced players. There, I would have lost against a player who realized they should have been attacking me more aggressively earlier. Um, but 
that's the difference, you know, is have, in having a little bit of experience and, and having not very much experience in draft is that you'll make a decision like that. Um, you can almost feel it. You can almost feel the turn where you're like, hey, this game has shifted and I can win this now. Um, and sometimes you can tell because your opponent hasn't started attacking you yet that they haven't realized it yet. And now you've got this. Was that relevant? Yeah, I, to think, the... <laughs> I feel like a few things to, um, to talk about here. Uh, I have started my quadrant theory article, given how anxious people are to talk about the topic. So hopefully that's up tomorrow or the next day um, so that I can give like my expanded thoughts. But the reason that I disagree on principle with racing being one of its own quadrants is because the percentage of games where it's actually correct for and when i think of racing i think like you're both a spacing you're both just attacking with everything that you have the situations where it's correct for both players to do that are it's, it's incredibly small um so i think if people find themselves doing that very often it's because they've misidentified their role in that game um like and so, some of the examples that people gave well like oh if you're you know you can't deal with this creature and that they're attacking you with and while well, you're attacking them back you're not racing you're behind <laughs> like you are losing that game that's not a race um so i think people sometimes will say oh well we're racing when they're behind or and patrick this may be the case with you that you it sounds like play more aggressive decks than than say like I do. So it could be that um, that you want to break parity sooner rather than later. Because say if, if the two of us are playing against each other and your deck is more aggressive, mine is probably more mid range controlling. Um, I'm going to start drawing more cards that say things like draw two cards, whereas um, the more aggressive deck isn't. And so uh, maybe whether you know it's a decision you make subconsciously, you think like this isn't a game I'm going to win long term. So I kind of need to break parity this way and hope, you know, that things go my way. Um, so I think that's another version of behind. And I think that identifying whether or not you're supposed to be the attacker or defender is, it's such a simple thing, but it's uh, what makes or breaks a lot of games of limited. Because it can be correct for you to be the attacker four turns in a row, but on the fifth turn it's not. Because yeah. something has changed. Um, and it's, and I think sometimes people don't, um, aren't quick enough to recognize when their role has changed. Like, yeah, they're attacking on the fifth turn because they did it the four turns before and they're the attacker. Um, but slow down for a second. Like it's, it's just not correct to do it on this turn. Um, so I think that while there are some cases where it's, it's correct to race, I think most of the time it's because somebody, one of the two players has misidentified their role. Like if, if you're racing, you can't both be correct. Um, so I think when, you know, your opponent starts all out attacking, if you, if you haven't been doing anything for a couple turns, you both just been drawing your cards um, and then they all out attack or they start attacking you with three creatures, something has changed. And so instead of just going into, um, all right, well, vroom, vroom, you know, we're racing. It's all right. So what could they have drawn that makes the most sense? You know, and if, if they're playing Xenon and they just ace space, well, it's probably curtain call. And you go into the mode of how do I mitigate how awful this is going to be? You know, can I block in a way so that this, like, I at least have a chance to win this game? Um, so 
I will write a whole thing about the quadrant theory um, and why I uh, I'll, and then I'm going to think about it some more because I do think that magic favors the defender more than eternal does because you get to act last always um, in magic and just with the different phases, um, it favors the defender a little bit more. Um, but my initial like thinking about it is that racing is in its own game state. It's a, a misevaluation by one player about about their role in the current game. Yeah, I think that I mentioned racing on a previous episode once and uh and and the and the conclusion was pretty much if if both players are racing, one of them is wrong. Right. I I agree with that that one of them is obviously wrong. But I I guess what I disagree is how often it's knowable whether you are wrong or not. And therefore, like, I I think it's easy to be like, oh, well, you lost. It was obviously wrong to race. But, like, there's just so many unknowns that it's it's a game. I guess I just mean, like, it's still a game state that comes off up fairly often, you know, fairly often. Um. And so I still think it's important to think about and think about how to win a race or to stop a race. You know what I mean? It's it's still a thing that happens. And this is maybe cheating a little bit, but like the fact that you probably aren't playing the very best players in the world at card games also just means that people are going to be misevaluating and doing things that maybe like a John Finkel or Apollo Vitro Domodorosa or an LSV wouldn't do. But that doesn't mean that that, but that's just the reality of the games you'll be playing. And I feel like you just have to take that into account. And this is, again, slightly tangential, tangential to that point, but having parity be a quadrant that you want to focus on and the thing people often they associate parity with board stalls and like how board stalls can happen fairly often and i kind of put board stalls and races in the same sort of in the same box of like actually board states that really shouldn't happen but do happen do you know what i mean like like a board stall happens because someone probably one of the players probably should have been more aggressive than they were to stop a board stall from happening, but they didn't. It's just like these two players did nothing. And then all of a sudden the boards got clogged up and you have a board stall. And I feel like the same way about happens with races and like um, sort of, I don't know, I guess just, I don't know. We're Sorry, we're getting so off topic. But like a thing I think about a lot is, you know, people talk about how in races one person was right and one person is wrong. But um, I think it was in a podcast called the Arena Decklist podcast. The thing that really spoke to me and changed a lot about how I play um, Eternal and Limited is they were they just talked about how pro magic players have so many fewer board stalls because they never want to be doing nothing with a card. So if they're playing a card, 
they're playing it for a reason and they're playing to do something. They're playing it so they can do something with the card. And usually that means so like and he the person just was talked about how like is he felt like pro magic players were much more likely to like trade off cards and stuff because it's better to like play a three, three and then attack with it and get rid of their three, three or whatever, or get rid of their two, two. If you have a plan to deal with their other two, two, even though it's like an unfavorable double block, but they would rather be doing stuff with their card because if they're playing cards and doing nothing with it, they can't really leverage their play skill. So I have and, a uh, and so I guess that that's just led me to be a much more proactive player and sort of like incorporate that into my game more, like um, which I guess leads to more races, be it right or wrong. Well, I think um, so when I think of the high tier professional magic players, you know, the mm-hmm. Hall of Famers. Um, you know, I've watched a lot of their games, and so I, I don't necessarily ag- agree that board stalls don't happen, because, um, or at least the the really wide ones do, because there there are a couple of ways that at least I feel like I see these play out pretty commonly. Um, like the more I watch really great drafters play against each other, the more I see how often that they they're playing off the top of their deck, you know, because both their decks are good. They're both the players are good. You're not getting two for ones, you know, your opponent's cards all do things. Um, and so they trade one for one. It's it's hard to get an advantage. And so you kind of hope that that advantage comes from the top of your deck. So sometimes when I, when I watch really great magic players, it's, you know, they each have one creature because they've just traded off all these resources. But there are certainly games, and the, the one that comes to mind is um, Huey Jensen played against Seth Manfield in the World Championship that Huey won. Um, and I know like how great John Finkel is, and I know about Kai's, um, like the pro, all the Pro Tours that he won. But since I've been watching Magic, Huey at Worlds is the, the best Magic I've ever seen. Like, Huey at that tournament was just insane. Um, and Seth Manfield is also, like... <laughs> just an insanely great magic player. Um, but when, so yeah, they could trade off resources, but also I'm a little more cautious when, when I play against another player that, you know, like if I'm queued up against hats and he, and he's injustice and leaves up a power every turn when it seems like, you know, he could have used that power differently. I'm going to put finest hour in his hand and I'm going to yeah. play a little bit more cautiously. And then the game might stall out a little bit. Um, because there are a lot of ways that, um, you know, that you can get blown out. A lot of, you know, good players play a lot of one power interaction. And so you do sometimes get into these games that, that last a long time. I, I think that one of my, one of my personal areas of, of getting better is figuring out how to win those long games against other players who are of a similar skill level that I am certainly not like Huey. I would just get crushed by him, but like, <laughs> um, so sometimes, yeah, when I see really great, limited players it's you know they each have one creature because they've traded off resources but i I think i see plenty of games where um the board kind of stalls out but like i do agree that they try to actively do things with their cards they don't want them to go to waste um but when they're playing against other elite players i think that um board stalls do happen because they're they're taking they're not playing around a lot but they're giving their opponent a lot of credit for the signals that they're sending i mean i agree with that i i guess that I was in no way claiming that that every game of Pro Magic, you know, leads into a race. 
I guess I just mean like as a general. Uh, I don't know. Do you, you know, like I just, art? I, I guess I just think if you like watch an average, you know, Eternal streamer stream Eternal, and I kind of talked about this on the show before, but I just spend most of the stream like yelling at my computer for the opponent to attack you know what i mean (laughs) like like what in god's name are you doing over there and that obviously doesn't happen when you're watching two pros you know what i mean so i guess like how those board stalls form and stuff is just like it's a very different thing obviously there are the there are situations where board stall will just naturally happen but i don't think it's as i don't know i guess i just don't think it's I like mean, they certainly inevitability get or maximum value out of their cards. I could see how board stalls are, are you know, more likely um, with less experienced players. Like I sometimes I'll watch somebody on stream and they'll attack a two two like into their opponent's caravan guard or um, like an O five, and the person won't block. And I'm just thinking, like, yeah, they probably have a trick. But if you're not blocking with that creature, what are you? doing with it like what is it even doing in there um so i i can see how in that way yeah like board stalls um could happen with newer players especially because newer players don't want to get quote-unquote tricked i swear we would all be better with this if we just call them combat effects um but i think especially newer players have a really hard time with combat tricks you don't want to get tricked oh i got outsmarted by opponent like no sometimes they just have a trick it's just just how it goes yeah but um, yeah, to sort of <laughs> move on to Hass's week, um, as as a final concluding thing, I would like to say that if you didn't watch day two of the draft championship, you really should because I think it really highlighted how good the good players of Eternal Draft and how much how big of a high-skilled, like, format just draft is in general. Like, um, you know, like, I made it to the top 64. I don't really know how. But, like, after watching them, it was just, like, the skill gap between me and, like, the elite players of Eternal. It was, I thought it was just, like, a very impressive tournament. I'll well, have to go I, back and watch it. Yeah, I, have I haven't gone back and watching it to watch it either because I played my first. Uh, I, I was eliminated from day two pretty quickly. I had a buy uh, from the months and months of of preparation <laughs> that I put in to be on to get into day two, uh, and then immediately was eliminated. And then out of spite, I did not watch the actual games <laughs> because it was it felt like a lot of uh effort for for uh leading up to nothing uh but uh now that the now that now that things have cooled off a little bit from the draft uh championship uh not that the tournament is over i guess the top eight has yet to be scheduled um (laughs) then i might be able to go back and look at some of those games uh well if if you lost to sunnyvale right I did lose to Sunnyvale. Yeah, yeah, I did. So, I put up a pretty good effort considering how unbelievable his deck was. Well, he then in the next round lost to Cosmos, who utterly destroyed me. Yeah. <laughs> so, 
I think that means I did better than you at the tournament. Is that probably? Yeah, that's probably what it means. Yeah. My but, draft uh, yeah. was a my draft was a train wreck. It's all right. Um, <laughs> it's it's it didn't go well. Yeah. Um, and I think actually the mistake. I'll let, let me let me segue into how my draft week was. Um, because I think my mistake leading up to the tournament was playing a bunch of Eternal. I, for whatever perverse reason, um, play worse when I'm playing a lot. I think mm-hmm. that my brain functions a lot better when I am doing a lot of different things, and when I focus too much on Eternal or any game, I I get a lot of tunnel vision and don't uh, and don't make uh, mm. good decisions anymore. Once when I took uh, so last week, uh, I was very down on Eternal. Just uh, I was frustrated with the current format. Um, I was frustrated that they scheduled the draft championships during this format because I don't think it's the healthiest draft format that they've ever had. And so having the most important draft tournament that they've ever had uh, during one of the worst formats, I thought was a poor decision. (laughs) And I think that seems, I don't know, it seems really obvious to me, but uh, I don't know what they were thinking. Um, you can still any good drafters are still going to tend to do better, but I think it's a very high variance format, and so uh, not just me, but a lot of very good drafters, you know, just sort of didn't luck out during the draft and were therefore not really didn't have a chance. Um, I anyway, uh, I, I guess I shouldn't complain too much about that, but I do think it's true that uh, a, a, a higher variance format. Um, even if it's not necessarily bad for the game over the long term, is a bad time to hold a draft championship. Anywho, um, I took a few days off of the off of the game after complaining on the Discord that the game, that I hated it or whatever it is that I said that got everyone all worried about me, and then came back to the game and drafted again and immediately went seven wins a couple of times. And so I think that uh, I've, I've just learned the lesson that I've learned several times in this game, which is don't play so much. Just play <laughs> less and you'll be fine. Because now I'm just sort of back, you know, yeah. I'm ranked where I'm used to being ranked and I'm, you know, I'm doing fine. Uh, and and it really comes, it came down to actually one of the reasons that I'm starting to do better again is one of the articles that Shab wrote. Um, in, uh, I, I actually forget which article it was, but you made reference to some of better ups, uh, winning draft lists that, uh, included some cards that, uh, it included some cards that you might, that might not be considered strong cards, but they were there because you needed a curve and you need a certain number of two drops. And he was building a deck rather than, you know, just trying to jam all the good cards into a deck. And I started doing that and just realizing that the with the weak draft packs, there's going to be some bad cards in your deck. And it's more important to draft a few good cards and play them and then fill in the rest of your deck with, uh, with just bodies, with just units that can put some presence on the board, even if they're not good cards or efficient, uh, efficiently costed units so that you can play those good cards and have a curve um, and have a deck that's relatively consistent. So I've started doing that, putting a lot more bad cards in my deck and winning because of it. So that's working for me. It's, um, yeah, I'm I'm glad that is working, but it, I do share your disappointment with the format um, 
you know, particularly that it was the draft championship because I I feel that before the the pack changes, the when I wrote it's time to draft the hard way in Eternal, I feel like the format was so excellent because there were so many different viable decks that you could mm-hmm. that you could build. You know, I wrote a section about toolbox drafting, and I feel like there were a lot of tools, there were a lot of viable decks that you could that you could draft and it led to really interesting decisions in the second and third packs, because even if you wanted, you know, like a, one of the examples they gave, like a shadow two drop, like Argentport doesn't want the same ones that Stonescar wants. And so it led to, to really interesting decisions. Um, and I, I definitely think that's less true now. Um, yeah. yeah <laughs> um, I think what they did was, uh, I think what they did with that, with the original format, with that original um, uh, uh, draft pack formation that they released along with Argent Depths was they really put some thought into the uh, into which cards would synergize with the main <laughs> themes that they were dealing with. You know, they put a lot of ambush cards in uh, in Time and Shadow like playable ambush cards and fast spells. They put a lot of big spells that went with the Praxis theme. They just sort of, they they, they put a lot of good cards to sacrifice in Argentport. Like there were a lot of things that they that they clearly put thought into and, and, and did correctly if they wanted to build a fun draft format. And I struggled with the format at first, but then once I started getting it, I was really enjoying it. And it seems like they reversed all of those decisions for this format without really replacing them with other themes and it is baffling to me like i don't know how the same team that put together the last format could have put together this format and they only changed half the cards but i don't see i don't like i don't see the thought process behind the cards that they included anymore and that um it worries me because the whole reason i play eternal is because i think it's well designed and so when it starts to feel like it's not well designed, I don't know what I'm doing here anymore. <laughs> so it, it feels like you know there there definitely are still archetypes, but there's there's watered down. Um, yeah. Like if you drafted, you know, if we think about Magic draft, um, there were some Magic drafts in the past where you would do three of all the same set, but then there were times where you do two of one set and one of another, and you could kind to build decks but they didn't always like the themes didn't always really go together and so you ended up with kind of more piles of cards than than you did actual decks you know when you would get three packs of from all the same set um and before the changes this kind of felt like it felt like dominaria to me in magic um where like everything yeah had, had a lot of thought um and you could you could build a deck instead of 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 a pile of cards um, and that doesn't feel that doesn't ring nearly as true to me anymore. Like in the format, as as we're playing it, like it, the themes are still there, but they're they're watered down because they're not as supported in the the second and third packs. And the good cards um, from packs one and four um, kind of feed into that narrative of like the rares being all that matters because um, when the overall card quality is lower, the the better cards will have an even bigger impact. So um, I feel like the formats reverted a little bit back to like Echoes of Eternity where, yeah, you you need to play some good cards and then fill in around them. Um, so it, it feels a little bit more like that to me um, than the, the kind of the deck building that we got to do before. 
Yeah, well, we just sort of have to, like, treasure it when it's good, um, I guess. Because I think, I mean, it, all all of the draft formats were bad in Eternal for a while, and then they started to kind of make good ones, and great, that's good, that's that's awesome. <laughs> I just hope that they remember how to, uh, how to, uh, I, I don't know, I just hope good things are in store. Um, Actually, if we could go on just a quick aside, um, because I have a question for you guys, because I didn't know, like, until this past year, um, I'd only hopped on for an eternal draft just to mess around, you know, um, once in a while. I'd never tried to do it competitively. You know, I'd I'd never draft, you know, so I I had no idea if the previous formats were balanced. The only eternal draft format I have any familiarity with is um, I called the deck in my head Rally Rats or Rats Ablaze, and... Blaze was in the format. It's the red, black, and green card. Mm-hmm. Um, it deals damage, gives you armor equal to the number of creatures uh, you have in play. And, and it was in a format with a the card that makes three rats that can't block. And it was Got this it. really bad deck that, when it came together, was super powerful. You would just make a bunch of rats. Like, you would play um, Rat Cage, and then I would play the Curator Spear. I'd make a bunch of things, and then Blaze would deal, like, 12 damage to my opponent. It was just ridiculous and hilarious. And... Uh, like a glass cannon. I have no idea what format that was. That's the only one that I really ever played and tried to draft with any sort of plan. And my plan was just to draft that deck. Um, so I didn't really know what eternal formats were like before that. Um, or like if they were cool and and well-balanced and I had just been missing out on them or, or if they were kind of like the rats ablaze kind of thing where it's just like, yeah, you can build this glass cannon and uh, sometimes it works and it's super fun what it does. I think that was I think that was probably set five, and I don't know what it was called. Uh, but it was it was it had sort of a three faction theme. Yeah. And uh, and uh, what's what's the ability? Oh, it was the um, I don't remember Renown. the name. Renown. Yeah, Renown was the Renown was the best deck. Uh, Justice Primal Fire. Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah, that was. That was the one that you drafted if you wanted the strongest archetype, and then the others were difficult but could work because they didn't quite put enough support in for the rats deck. Otherwise, it was great, and uh, I mean it was fun, but it was harder to draft than Renown because the individual cards were so bad. <laughs> yeah, it was also weird because like yeah, like, I just need a hint that I can play this rats deck. Like I was not trying to maximize my win percentage; I was just trying to play the blaze deck. Yeah. And I think I have to remind myself that because now I'm all about, you know, maximize your win percentage. Um, but if your goal is to just like draft and play sweet, sweet rares, have at it. Like, that's cool, too. Like, yeah, have a good time. Yeah. I'm just I don't that way anymore. But I did love that Blaze deck. And I would if that format was around tomorrow, I would force that deck tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. Well, sorry yeah. about that. Sorry. Off track. I mean that happens. That was like me with Green Stretch Empath from set seven. The uh, what was that ability called? Uh, muster the muster, three five. Yeah. The three five for five that draws two cards if you if you muster. Yeah. Yeah, which was play an attachment and play a spell in a turn. Yeah, like that wasn't the best deck, but boy, if I saw if I saw Green Stretch Empath, <laughs> did my draft take a hard left? <laughs> All right, we're we're running this train off the tracks. <laughs> I want to draw two cards one day. Yeah. yeah, I I will say with the, um, I don't know if I'm 
I'm personally not a fan of how Eternal sort of does their follow-up draft formats. And I, I do think part of that is because I don't actually play more than a couple drafts a week. So by the time most people, or I guess not most people, but by the time a lot of content creators or high volume drafters are sort of done with the format, I'm still feeling like I'm really just like, just starting to enjoy the format. And so when they do these like change the draft packs in the middle of the format, it's not only is it like a little nerve wracking for me because sometimes this happens, but also I'm not actually done with the format, but I, it has felt always to me that because they do a couple of these per format, these like draft pack changes, and it can be so hit or miss because they're like trying to change up the format, but they still need the support themes, but they don't want to keep a lot of the same cards in. So they have to change a lot of cards for some reason to like really change up the format that like there's usually one or two of these like mini formats that seem really bad and are just filled with bad cards. And you spend a couple months just wondering why or how, how this happened. Yeah, it seems unnecessary. So, Patrick, how was your how was your draft week? <laughs> how was my draft week? I don't know. I guess the the big thing in my mind is still the draft championship. Um, yeah. So I'm going to talk about that because we didn't have an episode last week. But um, that was it. Turned out a lot of fun because um, I had to play day one. So I started the draft with a Huru deck, which is actually a deck that even though it's like one of our most successful decks as far as receiving seven wins. I'm not totally comfortable drafting it and have a really hit or miss record with good Huru decks, which kind of confuses me because it they're very bursty and combo-y, which is kind of a play style that I like, especially, I you know, it's kind of a play style that I think I'm good with and feel comfortable with. But for some reason, I've just kind of struggled with it. So I drafted a Huru deck because it felt like Huru was open. Then immediately, our the first game of the day, my opponent played, was a three-faction deck, and turn two, or uh, turn two, so not very impressive, played the 2-1 imbue killer rare. Yeah, they have a lot of hunters. Yeah, so played that. A few turns later played um, the three-color legendary, the Time Justice Primal one that had Mastery 10, draw three random relics, draw a card every time you play a relic um, from a few from last set, I think. Okay. It's a legendary. We don't need to know about it. No. Then I finally, I was like, they got their Mastery. They got, of course, two very cheap relics. So then I was like, oh, I better kill this before they draw a third card. Then the next turn, they played, uh, they dropped the legendary Talir. Oh, yeah. Um, which uh, gives all your units uh, plus one. And then when you attack, you get to play the top card of your deck. Um, then the, the next turn, after they played Talir, they ambushed my flyer with a now 6 4 Teriax Hunter. Maybe a 7 4. I don't know. 
It's a 5-3 with ambush. It's a 5-3 with ambush, yeah. Yeah, so it was a 6-4 because Talir gave it plus one, plus one. So it ate my guy. Then the turn after that, they played Genitrex, the, the like, time, justice, 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 rare from this set. And so that felt like a lot to deal with my first game. <laughs> so I was like, screw this, I'm conceding. And then... Um, Twin Hex, who was in chat because I was streaming this, was like, hey, don't you have Lethal on board? Um, but I read that right <laughs> after I hit the concede button. Wow. Yeah. And so that was like the start of my tournament. And I was like, oh, today is going to be disaster. But then I was able to like... It actually ended up being good because I didn't get tilted and I just it made me realize that I needed to like obviously play tighter than conceding when you have lethal on board. Um, but it just it made me think like, you know, I just need to play tight and I need to pay attention. And if I do that, I can win games because my opponent had a ridiculous deck, but I had navigated it to a point where I was dead next turn, but I had lethal on board and like. And so I managed to go 3-4 with that 3-4 with that deck. Not great. But I did get some wins. So I went 3-3 after that. Um, then I drafted a Stone Scar deck, went 5-2. And then in the, my third run, I forced a Stone Scar deck. And I was like a little nervous about it. And I almost didn't play my third run because I was like, oh, well, this is much worse than my 5-2 Stone Scar deck. And then went six one with it, which got me into day two. So, um, so the thing I learned this week is I should probably just play Stone Scar because every time I don't play Stone Scar, I do a lot worse than when I'm playing Stone Scar. Yeah, that's the lesson. That's the yeah. lesson for anyone listening too. Any and anyone drafting Eternal is just play Stone Scar. Yeah, if you have <laughs> my exact skill sets, I would suggest playing Stone Scar. Yeah. Um, in, and then in, in day two, I drafted a Combray deck that felt okay, but then I was things were really screwy with the um, the beginning of that tournament. So then they had me against a boss as my first opponent, and I looked through their deck and I was like, oh, I can probably deal with this. And then I saw three armed and dangerouses, and I was like, oh, I don't think my deck could beat actually any armed and dangerouses. It would just like. I had one of those Combray decks where there just actually wasn't any big units, um, which happens a lot with Combray, I feel like. No, is that not your experience? I mean, you can end up with a deck where you've got a, little, a lot of little ramp guys. Yeah, that's exactly. Yeah. And you're like, I have some expensive cards. I had like, you know, I have like three, uh, you know, three of the four or five guy or whatever, you know, like. But it's just like not big. So if my opponent plays like a few big things after attacking me, I was probably not going to win that game. Anyway, but then the the bracket changed and I ended up playing against Cosmo, who just ran me over in six turns, two games in a row, um, more or less, uh, while playing Armed and Dangerous. I didn't dodge Armed and Dangerous. Anyways, that's pretty <laughs> sad. I spent more time discussing my fig, or not discussing, but trying to figure out what my last cut of my deck should be than the actual two games took, but uh, it was still a lot of fun. Uh, one of my big puns from the, the day was actually, because I, I 
this is the first digital tournament, eternal or otherwise, that I've ever um, taken part in. Um, so I didn't look at the email with the card lists that were sent out. Like, I just, you know, I'm just sitting there waiting for my games to start and, you know, telling myself to make good decisions. And I just completely forgot that I can look at my opponent's pool of cards. And so I didn't do that. And so my huge level up for my next tournament will be to do that um, since that's free information. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, in this case, it wouldn't have helped that much because the person that they they had us listed on uh, in the bracket uh, as playing against um, was not the person that you ended up playing against. So yeah. I should have done it in game. I definitely should have done it before game two because um, I thought they had a finest hour in their hand. Because I'd seen it game one. Turned out it was, a, it was a detain. I still couldn't have known that's what it was. But if I looked at their list, I at least would have known it was there. Yeah, yeah. I had I had for the games. I had uh, I had a pad of paper so that I could write down uh, if my opponent played a revenge card, and then put little ticks next to the card to to so that I would know how close it was to being cast again. I should do that. Yeah, it's it, it, for high level play. It's, it, that's a good thing to do because sometimes they're going to play their revenge card one hundred percent the next time uh, the, on their next turn, and you should know that. <laughs> yeah, in yeah, tournament settings for sure, because there are definitely games where I find myself and I'm like, did it they play a grizzly contest like nine turns ago? <laughs> yeah. Oh, I think that's coming back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think. Um... I actually had the, I, I didn't really set myself up for day two because I had farmer's market that day. So I had to wake up at 3.30 in the morning and then I worked at the farmer's market all day. And then I made myself a little seat seating and eating area in the back of my box truck to uh, to play my games because uh, market ended at 1.30 and the tournament was at 1. So I was like, I told my worker, I was like, so today, I was like... <laughs> Would you be able to stay late and pack up? Um, because I have an online card game tournament to play. And she was like, that is not what I was expecting you to say there. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah. But anyway, so my draft week was great. That was, uh, that was pretty much a whole show I think we just had there. Yeah, we did it. Uh, that was segment one, and now we're done. <laughs> yeah. Now we are on to announcements. <laughs> All right. Which, uh, as always, is just us thanking our patrons over at patreon.com slash farmingeternal, where for as little as a dollar a month, you get access to our show notes and recording beepers, bloopers, and you get to... Uh, <laughs> our recording uh, beepers. <laughs> you get to listen to the show knowing that you paid for it. Um, so... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. We'd like to, <laughs> to think of veteran patrons: Cotillion, Loki, Trickster, Sigma Tank, Mercurial Blue, Abednego, Meagles, Madness, Parmalee, Darth Herman, Twin Hex, Jed the Hamrid, Raven Dragon, S Rich Zero Two One Five, Worked on Sun, Yistout, and Sunblaze who changed their Patreon pledge? I think up. It was very unclear to me about the Patreon website i hate it but thank you doubly sunblaze for doing something with your patreon pledge 
I think raising it. Yeah. Yeah, this is um, great. <laughs> all right. So we'll move on to card of the week where we'll talk about a few cards um, instead of our week. And um, yeah, just let's highlight a card or two. Yeah. So What's your card of the week? My card of the week? Yeah. Uh, my card of the week is Valley Clan Sage, which is the two primal zero five um, where you can pay four to draw the top card of your deck. If it's a spell, um, otherwise discard it. And I wanted to highlight this card. Um, and it kind of the reason I want to highlight it goes back to what I was saying about the draft tournament is it was really surprising to me watching the coverage about how many uh, very good players were playing Elysian or playing Primal in their deck sort of outside of Huru, and how many of them played Valley Clan Sage. And there was like a really epic game with Isomorphic um, that I, I guess, it has, is it long enough I can spoil this? Probably. Um, where Isomorphic lost by decking um, themselves from using Valley Clan Sage so much. But um, so you would think that would lead one to believe that this probably isn't a good card. But the fact that Isomorphic was actively playing these cards and actively activating it and using it in a way that sort of seemed like they had a plan with this card really kind of changed my opinion. And I've now been drafting this, I guess not higher in the sense that you get them late, but being much happier playing them and trying to build decks with this card in mind a little bit more and being a lot less afraid to activate it. I think it's easy to fall into the trap with this card where you're like, well, I don't want to mill my a good card accidentally by activating this. Um, you know, like if you have four power up, you might as well activate it because... If you're not going to deck yourself like Isomorphic did, there's really no harm in getting rid of your top card because that very well could have been your, you know, you can just think of it as your bottom card. It's like the same thing we would talk about with Sunset Priest. It feels bad to play Sunset Priest and to bin two of the cards you really wanted, but that was just chance. You should still play a Sunset Priest. Um, and I don't know. So it was just really interesting to see people using this card and using it well. And kind of made me reevaluate it. Oh, I have a lot to say about Valley Clan Sage. It was almost the card I wanted to talk about. <laughs> I wrote a little section in the, the Phone Control article um, that I wrote about Valley Clan Sage. And you have to, so in order to, to think about why this card is so effective, you have to think really long term about the game plan, specifically in a deck like Felon Control. So a deck like Felon Control is trying to reach parity. You know, it's trying to survive long enough so that the game is even, like, I'm not taking any more damage, we're each drawing a card off the top of our deck. Once that happens, and say, like, you both have eight power and nothing's really going on, drawing a power and putting it in your void is almost the same thing in that it speeds up your clock by one turn. So um, this is the same. So Valley Clan Sage takes your cards that you don't want. It takes your excess power, puts it uh, in the void. 
it takes your bad two drops, puts them in the void. Most of the high impact cards that you're looking for in a deck like Talent Control are spells. So in general, you're either drawing spells or you're putting cards that you did not want to draw in your void, which is almost the same as drawing in the late um so what valley plantate does if we want to talk about quadrant theory is it's great in developing because it blocks everything and then if you put it in a deck you know where it's good and you have spells um you go get like the fell deck is a little bit worse now because one of the more impactful things you can get is uh, changey stick and it mills changey stick um so it's a little bit worse than when i wrote the article but um, it's great when you're developing, and then it just destroys Harry. Because if you know, if I use Valley Clan State twice, and I've just milled two power, I've increased my clock to find my best cards by two. Whereas your opponent is still just drawing one card off the top of their deck. Yeah, it's funny because, like I said, I um, I've been using this card more aggressively um, recently, and then in a a very recent game, I got really power flooded. But because I had a Valley Clan Sage, I was actually binning most of that power. So I had 19 cards left in my deck, and this is in an 18 power, um, you know, 18 power deck. I had 19 cards left in my deck. I had played eight power. I had six power that I had just uh, binned with Valley Clan Sage. And then at that point, I was like starting to think and wonder, and I think it was wrong, but I was like starting to become more and more hesitant to activate my Valley Clan Sage because the chance of me binning a unit was going up and up, and I really needed to draw a unit. But I wasn't sure because it's like at the same time, you know, like, I, I don't know. It was like I was very unsure of what I should be doing because I was like, I have 19 cards. Only five of them are power now. And it's like maybe five of them are spells, which means nine of them are units. And I really need to draw a unit. Am I supposed to just like still do it? Because like, you know, LSV kind of talked about like you're supposed to loot even if you have like, I don't know. He like he kind of talks about you like you loot even if you have a good card in hand that you don't want right. to get yeah. rid of. The looting problem, uh, I struggle with with looting. Yeah, looting is a really really tough one. It's one where like I kind of default to because LSB says yeah you should always loot, and it's one of those situations where even if I don't one hundred percent understand why, or my dog doesn't hundred percent understand why. Like, I'll always loot because I trust LSD process. Yeah, that's something I, I definitely have to look into more um, because that's another really important topic. Sorry about the dogs. No, it's okay. So, Hats, what are your thoughts? Uh, well, in in terms of when you activate Valley Clan Sage, uh, that's very rare when I don't want to do that, but that comes back to knowing your deck to some degree. Um, because if you can't draw any spells or you're very unlikely to draw any spells for whatever reason, uh, it might not be correct. But most of the time, yeah, you just draw because you're not you're not actually losing a card. You're just maybe drawing a card. And also it helps that all of the revenge cards in the set are spells um, it, because like the risk in 
discarding the top card of your deck is if you had a whole bunch of revenge units, then you could discard it and you would lose the value from revenge. But because they're all spells, uh, it's a great thing to cast a revenge spell, have it somewhere in the top 10 cards of your deck, and then use Valley Clan Sage to try to draw it early, because there's no downside to that. Um, and so it's it's set up well with the theme of revenge spells as well. Uh, but just the fact that it is a two-power blocker with five... Uh, health in a format where with some very dangerous two power attackers uh, makes it playable all by itself. Uh, like just the fact that it can block, you know, Flame Heart Patroller or a Chain Whip Bludgeoner um, makes it makes it a good pick. Uh, I didn't really understand how important it was going to be at the beginning of the format to block those kind of units, but since Valley Clan Sage does it, it's great. If it were a if it were a one power zero four, it would be an even better card because it would block all of the same things and it would cost less. <laughs> that would, it's, uh, it, as it is, you don't usually need five health because there's nothing with four strength that's attacking you. Everything is attacking you with three strength or five strength <laughs> or yeah. two strength. Nothing's attacking you with four. So you don't need that five, you don't need that five health. But it's fine that it has it. It's health that you. It's it's a little extra health that you didn't even need. Yeah, didn't know you wanted. All right, so hats. What is your card? Uh, mine. There's not much to say about it, but I wanted to highlight it anyway. It's Frontline Volunteer. It is a. It is an uncommon. Uh, three Justice Justice for a three four, uh, and it has two abilities. Uh, if you have two Fire Influence, it has Quick Draw, and if you have two Primal Influence. It has Overwhelm. It might as well be blank. Uh, the reason that you pick this, and it's one of the best cards in the format, is that it's a 3-4 for 3, which is a ridiculous stat line for this specific format. And I've just noticed recently how oppressive it is if somebody plays a frontline volunteer on turn 3. It completely dominates the board because there's so many 3-3s. Three there's so many things that want to attack as a 3-3 three three or, uh, or, or just... Um, will will die if they like you have to you have to gang block it with a couple of things there's no other three drops that can tangle with it uh if it had no text at all it would still be an uncommon that i would be happy to first pick because it's a three four for three and i think that's a maybe that wasn't quite as true in the last draft format where the cards from the uh curated draft packs were on average more powerful but because you have to play so many cards that don't have any any text now anyway, you're playing five twos for four, you're playing six fours for six. Something that's a three four for three is amazing. <laughs> it's, so uh, I just think that it's interesting that it's a card that's positioned like this. And maybe it's just this specific format. Uh, and maybe this is a topic, like we could do a whole uh, show about this sometime about how uh certain formats will have a certain uh like basic strength level of attackers that you need to deal with if you're defending um and how certain units are positioned better in certain formats than others but yeah frontline volunteer um is one of a is one of a five card cycle one in one in each faction and they all have good abilities the the fire one is a 3-3 that can get flying or decay, which is great, 
but I would still take frontline volunteer over it every time because it's a three four for three. <laughs> yeah, yeah, this card, yeah, it is very good. I actually, from the other angle, um, because in in the draft championship, I had a com. Combray deck was my final deck that lost. And I had one of these and I had two uh, caravan guards. So I thought like I was pretty good in the, I would be set up to get into the late game. And like, I think this is one of the reasons Primal's doing so well is because Frost is like such a great way for aggressive like Skycrag or Huru decks to deal with these like, impossible to get through units like frontline volunteer and like um caravan guard it's uh it's kind of interesting because i was like because i agree this is like an excellent card and i was like huh what are you going to do with your skycrag deck and then uh, cosmos was like frost frost attack yeah. you for 30 and i was like oh i guess that i guess that does it <laughs> <laughs> i, I my question did have a good answer. All right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I, the point being that it's, it's interesting that like, because like a card like this is good, it's like, it also makes other cards that aren't necessarily like great also good because they deal with this card. And I don't know, it's sure. all kind of interesting how these, all, all these things sort of play with each other. Uh, in a recent game, I had someone play a frontline volunteer and then follow it up with, oh, what is the card with the revenge that gives something killer? Um, anyway, it's the... Natural order? Natural yeah, natural order. order. They followed it up with a natural order, um, and on and they, they cast it on the frontline volunteer, and it ate, like, one of my three threes. And then I, it's coming back, right? The natural order is going to get cast again, and the frontline volunteer isn't dead. And so that game didn't feel good. <laughs> I was, I knew it was coming, and there's like, I don't, I don't have any answers to this. I don't have any answers to a natural order on a frontline volunteer. That doesn't seem like it should just win a game outright, but in this format, it kind of does. Yes, and that's the big advantage it has over a caravan guard, which is a larger unit for for three power. Is that you natural order on a caravan guard isn't that great? <laughs> yes yeah i agree and like you uh, i think that is an important thing to point out is like sort of like with valley clan sage you know like the one point to health doesn't actually that matter that much in this format you know right it doesn't no there's there's hardly any situations where a frontline volunteer is a worse blocker than a caravan guard just because of the the stat distribution on the units you're likely to encounter. Any thoughts yeah. on this card, Shop? Um, not that card specifically. I do. I, I do want to talk about your larger point about um, how like four is kind of the the sweet spot. Like part of what makes that this card just so good is it passes the vanilla test. Um, and how you talk about how creatures in this format attack for three or they attack for five, and so a creature like Dune Diver that's a one six. Um, just becomes a lot more valuable because even if your opponent like plays their flame heart patroller and does like the best thing they can do, play a symbol in the next turn, your Dune Diver is just like, yeah, I block everything in this format. It's mm -hmm. a three power block everything forever. Um, so yeah, I think that um like Ben Stark will talk about this, how there are different the numbers change in each format. 
And there is not much of a difference between, you're right, like a 3-4 and a 3-5, because the real number is six that you want to get to. Um, so, yeah, I yeah. like it. I agree with pretty much everything you said. All right. So All right. What is What's your, your card then this week? Oh, my card of the week is Metal, M-E-T-T-L-E. Um, I love this card. I really want to, wanted to highlight a card that is really flexible. Um, so metal, you can give one of your creatures invulnerable to damage for the turn. It's uh, one time. It's a fast spell. And you always find a way to get like one card worth of value out of this card in general, unless you're, you know, playing it into a removal spell or something like giving yourself the opportunity to get two for one. If you're blocking, it's great. You can save your creature. If you're attacking, they two for one. You can save your creature and you only kill one of their creatures. The reason why I wanted to highlight it is one, not only because it's flexible and it's even better, like in this format, because of uh, decay, people will just run their de decay creatures into you because they, it's almost like killing it. Um, and so metal, <clears throat> and so metal stops that. But what metal also does is it trades up on power a lot of the time, um, and we often think of like getting one up on our opponent resource-wise, like being a two-for-one being the best example. But another kind of positive resource exchange that you can have is a positive power exchange. You know, your opponent can spend four, um, four, three or four power on their combat trick. You spend one power on metal. You probably did something else with your power that turn. Um, so it's a really, really flexible card. Um, you can pretty much always find a way to make it good. Um, or at least to get a card's worth of value out of it. And sometimes you trade up for a pretty significant amount of value. River agrees. Uh, yeah, I think that Metal... I This is a card that I underestimated when in the first set that uh, we... where we When we played with it. Um, and I think it actually is better now than it was in that set. But, uh, but still, I don't think I realized how good it was. Uh... And it's good now because it deals with a few things like decay and uh, uh, and and uh, relic weapons and stuff that are fairly prevalent in this format. Um, it's nice being able to to defend one of your units against a relic weapon removal because usually your opponent is on, is counting on the relic weapon working, and uh, and that's one of the ways where you can trade one power for a lot of power because relic weapons are expensive. Yeah, and, it, and, and in that situation that you're describing, where they're kind of counting on that creature being gone because of the relic, it's um, you're up on power, and you're usually up huge on tempo as well, because now instead yeah. of that creature being gone, you know, the, a lot of times you're just cracking back now with that creature to finish off the weapon or whatever. And more, more than that, they've attacked with a relic weapon. You've, you've made your creature invulnerable to damage. They did that before they attacked, and now you have an, an invulnerable unit that they can't attack into. Yeah. You've stolen their entire turn with a one-power spell. Right. So I, I just think it's super flexible. It's um, and, and really, really cheap. It's super flexible and super cheap, and that's really what you want out of your card, so that's uh, the one that I wanted to highlight. I'm always happy to play one in my time decks, um, figuring out how many and which combination of those... Um, one power time spells is actually something that's rolling around in my brain right now. The metal pause for reflection and forget. Yeah. Um, I ran a deck recently that had one of each and that 
I liked that, but I don't know if that was sample size or what. So that's like something in this format I'm trying to figure out as I really like some of those time one power spells. Um, so finding the right balance of those in different decks is something I'm I'm thinking about. Yeah, the fact that the there are a few of those kicking around also makes Blur Haze Worms a much better card. If the only fast spells and ambush units were in the format were fairly expensive or cost at least three, then Blur Haze Worm would be a really awkward card. But because sometimes you can play it with five power and then immediately like get value um, off of it on the next turn, then Blur Haze is fairly consistent. And not as much as in the last format, because I think things were set up better, but it still works. Metal's still around. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of... Yeah. I really didn't know where you were going there, because I, I felt... Um, sort of the opposite with Blur Haze Worm, like, even though there's more one-cost spells, because... Maybe it's just because Shadow is worse. I've had a lot more trouble, like, <laughs> triggering my Blur Haze Worms. Yeah, I just... Oh, for sure. But they, mostly... They took I, out a lot of the good spells for it. Yeah, I, I feel like it's mostly just because the deck's worse, so you're just, like, not able to be cute with your Blur Haze Worm and try try to get value because you're just trying to stay alive instead of trying to get value with the deck. But it's also because they 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 took um they took cards like Defile and the th- and the three three ambush guy for four and like yeah. and, and, and basically took them out of the format. Um one of the yeah. best things to do was play Blur Haze Worm and then Defile on your opponent's term and, and that's never that's never gonna happen now. So yeah, the whole deck. The whole deck was just completely gutted. Yeah, yeah. Actually, um, sort of what um, Shab said at the end there with finding the sort of right balance of these one cost spells kind of is a thing that I've been struggling with too, and sort of leads into the seven win run breakdown, which is our next segment. But before we get to that, sort of, the, I don't know, scoop scoop ourselves. You know, like time is doing so much worse in in this format as far as like the deck list we've been receiving and i've been feeling that a lot myself too and it's really been hard to like figure out for me to figure out because i keep drafting time decks and thinking that they look good and they're just feel like they never work as well as they used to like i used to have more success with time decks and I know, like, time did lose some things, but, like, other colors lost a lot more. And, you know, Blur Haze Worm is still, like, a really good time card. And they gave you sort of just as many, if not more, one-cost spells to, like, trigger it quickly. I'm just, like, I don't know, been really struggling with figuring out how to make time work. Well, I don't have an answer for you because I'm having a similar experience. When I draft time, it feels like it's more of a struggle to win. Um, I just think that I think they took away too much from it. Like they they um, they the weighted cards don't play into time's game plan very well, and they did in the last format. They had uh, well, I mean, I. I I don't remember all of the specifics, but things like Humbug Nest are are de-emphasized now. Um, that was a really good card in most of the time decks, and uh, it had uh, um, shoot uh, the 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 five 
power draw three was boosted and some other things. Uh, yeah. Distillation, yeah. There were just a few key cards that made it feel like there was a payoff for getting into time, and I don't think there's any in the draft packs now other than other than the 2-1 ramp guy, which is a very good card, but he can't really carry a whole deck on his own. Yeah. Yeah, I, th- I think it's hard for the time decks to close games. Yeah. Um, I think like it's a really great supporting color, but I think that it's it's one of the... E- it might be the easiest faction for... Like for you to go through the draft and pick a lot of you know apprentice mages and batter mages and really good cards, and then you just don't get the top end, or your top end is a hunting Allosaur, and you're trying to give your five three battery mage killer, and it's you know has three toughness. So I, I do think that <clears throat> um, you can definitely get a lot of the pieces for the time deck, and then it will just straight miss. But even when it comes together. Um, it really kind of relies on that second color to 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 end the game. Yeah. Um, what so. time really needed was what it usually has, which is a couple of really big commons that can that can actually tangle in combat, and it doesn't have those. Uh, yeah. Allosaur is the closest thing, but it's a seven drop, and you're relying on already having something else significant on the board when you play it. So yeah, time just sort of isn't set up with a coherent game plan by itself. And because a lot of the big payoffs were also in the draft packs last time around, uh, they weren't necessarily in time, but they were in other other uh, factions. Like Fire had a couple of really amazing things that you could ramp up to, and it doesn't have those now. <laughs> and so now time, I don't know what time is even trying to do exactly. Yeah, maybe that's it. Because like one of the things um, yeah, that I've been thinking about is like, yeah, the common complaint with time is that they don't have any big things to like end the game with but they didn't in the last format either but i guess there were just more big things in general so then time could just like ramp into those things even if they weren't specifically in time um, uh yeah i mean it had i mean it was part of the it was part of the creation deck so you would be ramping up to your shugo's hooked sword or your uh or your edge of autumn edge of no, autumn. no i guess that, sorry i mean pre-draft pack changes like in the previous draft pack oh i see yeah in yeah. set nine it's not like time had any big fatties you know like we we were still complaining you know two months ago how cambrai didn't have anything to ramp into yes um so it's not just that like it's not like time lost a big thing and now it's worse it's that like it's supporting cast also or lost big things. So yeah, I mean, just sitting here thinking about it, I mean, I, I still draft a lot of time decks, but um, the Praxis deck is a little bit worse, not because of what happened to time, but because of what happened to the five cost spells. So that archetype is now worse, um, and Xenon is now worse. Yeah. Um, so. <clears throat> You know, thanks to a lot of the cards that they took out in Shadow, too, and cards that they took out in Time. So I definitely think that two of the archetypes were hit pretty significantly, not so much because of changes that were made in Time, but um, changes made to their archetypes. Yeah. Yeah, that's, I think that's a clearer way of looking at it, yeah, is that, is that Time used to be great because it was part of, of, of at least three really strong, well-supported strategies, and uh, taking away two of those... And leaving the one that was uh, iffy anyway, <laughs> it means it's in a weird 
position. Uh, it's not unplayable. It's still some good cards, but it's um, I'm not getting the win percentages with time that I was. So I tend to, I'm I'm kind of starting to avoid it more now. Yeah, and so uh, that does lead into our seven-win run breakdown, which is our long-standing gated collection project here at Farming Eternal, where our listeners send in their seven-win drafts to farmingeternal at gmail.com or post them to the seven-win channel of our Discord. Um, and we accept them as either exported deck lists or any kind of Eternal Warcry link. And then we kind of talk about uh, what's doing well, what's not doing well, share our conclusions, and thank everyone who took the time to contribute, as well as John Holio for entering the list. So, Hats, take it away. Uh, well, we have some new contributors this week. Uh, Joe L, J-Rock MTG, Quincy, Ciatar, and Toucan. And then uh, we also want to thank our veteran contributors, Abednego, Abarash1819, Agent Dynamo, Alabazoo, Avgots, Beard Broken, Brantar, Celtic Guardian 7, or Celtic Guardian 7, one of the two, Sizzle Steam, Collector, Commander Salamander, Cotillion, Darth Herman 2, D-Dub, Dubes, Gato Sujo, Grandar, Hats on Lamps, Eplong No, Jed the Homerid, Jose Carlos 2121, Mancio 1982, Meadow, Meagles, Mercurio Blue, Another Ship, Out on a Limb, Patamaru, Sakarnan, Shab, Slamgo, Sleffer 13, Sunblaze, Surf Wizard, Tempest Dragon King, Titus and Blossom, Twin Hex, Vader, and Wintermute. Yeah, so thank you very much, everyone. That's what we get for uh, missing a week. Yeah, I get to read everyone's name. It's like a reward, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I apologize yeah, so the, for the uh, names I got wrong. I don't know. I, no, I think, I think you did pretty good. I uh, I usually don't read the individual numbers, but try to group them in some way. But, you know, everyone has their own re handle reading style. Yeah, yeah. Everyone has their own flawed handle reading style. Um, yeah, so the main things I wanted to say is uh, last time we spoke, uh, we kind of said that Justice was far and away the best color, and then... The other four colors were sort of bunched up in the 30 to 40% range, with Justice being in the mid to high 40% of all the deck lists we received. There's been a little bit more differentiation um, as we've gotten more deck lists for this new format. So Justice is still in the lead in about a little over 45% of our decks have Justice. Um, and again, in a two-color format, you would expect each color to have approximately 40%. If everyone was 40%, it would be like a perfectly balanced format. Um, so Justice is a little bit above average. Fire is at exactly 40%. And then Time and Primal are in the low 30s and Shadows in the 20s. So that's sort of how the breakdown is going on. With Primal being slightly above Time, so Time's sort of now the quote-unquote, fourth worst color as far as our seven-win draft decks go. Um, well, that's it's not a huge surprise that after all of the good cards were taken out of shadow from the draft packs that it would be in last place. 
Yeah, that all sounds correct to me. Yeah. Yes. Um, the uh, the only sort of interesting thing, I guess, is, um, you know, as far as the color pairs, uh, Huru continues to dominate our seven-win deck lists, um, being in over 17.5% of decks that we receive our Huru. Um, and again, you would expect 10%. In a, every All 10 color pairs would have 10% in a perfectly balanced format. So Huru is doing quite well. Next is Stone Scar, which sort of has overtaken Rakano as uh, being the second best color pair, which is interesting to note because Shadow is in Stone Scar, which really just means that the other three possible Shadow decks are not doing very well, um, which is true. So Stone Scar is sort of over. Yeah, so Stone Scar is now our second best. Um, deck overall and the best sort of fire-based aggro deck could have told you that um and then number three is rakano which uh is a deck that i continue to struggle with these uh these combat trick rakano decks um but people are winning with them still though not at the rate because that used to be our best deck and then still was doing quite well but has sort of slowly even as this second format has matured has trended downward in the number of submissions. I was having a lot of luck with Rakano at the beginning of the format too, at the beginning of the new format and not so much now. And I think it's because there was this weird period where people weren't taking combat tricks as high as they were supposed to. Mm -hmm. Um, And then now people have pretty much caught on and they're, you know, taking finest hour over everything and which is often correct. And uh, and so now it's not as easy to get just a million combat tricks in one deck. I think if you can get a million combat tricks in one deck, that's the time that you want to be in in Rakano or really anything with justice. It's more about justice than it is about Rakano. Um, but I I, I I now struggle to make a winning Rakano deck because it just sort of seems like either fire or justice will be cut in any given um, in any given draft. Yeah. Yeah, I don't, um, I guess I'm not drafting the best decks because I don't often find myself in Stone Scar or Rakano, but that's mostly a product of the fact that, like, I'm just least comfortable drafting fire. Like, um, I don't 100% know exactly how those decks come together, you know, and what, in what order you take Flameheart Patrol or over daggers or, um, uh, the, the fire decks are certainly the ones that I'm least confident in like how to draft them. I still do draft fire decks. I mean, putting Toto Pioneer and Might Weaver in the same deck is in my skill set, but um, <laughs> it's, they're certainly not the kind of decks that I'm like building a fire deck. They just kind of happen when they happen for me. If, if I have a fire deck, I've probably got some pretty good rares in there because that is definitely not um, how I lean naturally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then the final thing I wanted to highlight is that, um, Again, I think this is also unsurprising given what we're take, we've been saying, but um, there is a bunch more splashing happening now than in the original format. So that is something to think about. And sort of unsurprisingly with a format with changey stick in it, uh, Primal is the number one splash color. Yeah, that would make sense. Changey stick is one of the best splashes in the history of Eternal. Yeah, so that that all checks. But just to keep that in mind, that uh, you know, people, 
I don't know if they're if it's correct to do or people are just feeling forced to splash because of um, how bad the draft packs are, but people are winning with with uh, more than two color decks, a little bit more than previous. Yeah. So I guess the uh, I guess uh, the advice that we can give from that is to is to not be too strict in 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 going into two factions, um, but maybe to stay open a little bit to drafting good cards with the potential of splashing them, um, because you may not end up with enough good playables, and splashing is pro- it might be correct much more so than in than before the the draft. Uh, draft pack changes all right so shall we move on to our main topic yes please (laughs) for the love of god please (laughs) (laughs) um all right so uh shab this is this is your time to shine uh where we wanted to talk about uh your article drafting the hard way which is based on a very old Ben Starks article and sort of sort of lay out what that means, maybe different other sort of competing ways to draft and then how to apply that in this format. Right? Sure. So, so drafting the hard way, like you said, was um, a Ben Stark article where he kind of laid out the way that he approaches booster draft. And for anyone who doesn't know, Ben Stark is a magic hall of famer um, generally considered to um, be an expert, at limited um <clears throat> and so they talk about this approach a lot on limited resources the podcast that lsv is the co-host of um and when i um, came back to magic and really just loved drafting and wanted to know everything about it i really took drafting the hard way to heart um and when i would do drafts at my local game store uh like a couple times a week it's something that i tried to do over and over and over again and i think honestly i think doing it in person um kind of helped me to see the benefits of drafting the hard way because when you draft in a pod like eight people just in person and it's kind of casual and it's um you know everyone's having a good time and all the black cards or red cards are just going around the packs it just becomes obvious that one color is not being drafted um you know and everyone just kind of laughs about it and it's very easy to see in that scenario that drafting the hard way really pays off. You know, you get to be the one person in this color. So what drafting the hard way is, um, and I'll compare it to two other ways of drafting. So first we have the easy way, and this is the way that um, comes most naturally, which is you open your pack, you take what looks like the best, most powerful card. Um, you look at your next pack, you take what is what looks like the best, most powerful card, and you say, okay, I have a black card and I have a green card. These are my colors. Here we go. Um, and so that's kind of drafting the easy way. You take your first few cards and then you just stay in your lane. You stay in those colors for pretty much the entire draft. Um, you compare that to drafting the medium way, which is a way that Andre Strosky, um, a Pro Tour champion, um, wrote an article about. And drafting the medium way involves becoming proficient at like two to three of the most powerful archetypes. So just the two to three most powerful decks in a format and just drafting the one at the table that is most open. Um, And then drafting the hard way is an approach where 
early on in the draft, you're not necessarily taking on, taking the card that is the most powerful. Um, you're taking the card that has the highest likelihood to make your final deck. So you are prioritizing cards that are very flexible because during the first few picks of the draft, you're not in any color. You are waiting to see um, what color or faction is being underdrafted by the people passing to you. Um, and then you move in to that color. Um, it's a it's completely counterintuitive because if you took a new drafter and after you know their first eight picks, you just stopped the draft and you said, All right, let's take a look at your eight cards. You know, what are your colors? And their first pick was, you know, a justice, a justice rare, and their second pick was was backbreaker. And then their fifth, sixth, and seventh and eighth picks were all like good primal cards or something like that, a new player might say, like, oh, well, I'm green or I'm black. Um, whereas somebody who's drafting the hard way would say, like, no, you're not. You're going to take the best cards that you have, and you're not going to play them. <laughs> like, you're going to just put those away. Um, because the cards that you're going to get later, I promise, are going to be really good. They're going to be worth it. So drafting the hard way really is, um, it's about staying open and flexible with your early picks. Um, not necessarily taking the most powerful card, taking ones that fit into a lot of different decks, a lot of different archetypes. Um, like if Defile or Annihilate were a card that we could pick, pack one, pick one, I would pick Annihilate every single time because um, it goes into absolutely any shadow deck that I'm ever going to build. It's an easy splash. Um, so like if I can pack one, pick one, almost guarantee I'm going to play that card, that's the card I want because... Um, you know, when you're drafting the hard way, you're kind of just letting the draft tell you what colors you're in. Um, and it's kind of drafting the hard way until it's drafting the easy way. Because once you identify what the open color is in pack four and you get, I mean, um, identify what the open color is in, in pack one, pack four is real easy. <laughs> like I had a, uh, a deck the other day where. I saw a late time symbol and I was like in pack one. And I said, that's just, that's really weird. I can't imagine that somebody's in time and they pass this. So I, I might move in and I got completely hooked up in pack four. And I was like, Oh, look at what's happening. This is incredible. And I was like, Oh yeah, I, I did the thing. I drafted the hard way. I read the signal and, and I'm, I'm getting rewarded now. So um, drafting the hard way is kind of a way to approach draft so that um you end your draft with a functional competitive deck with a way to win games um, pretty much every time uh, you finish your draft. Um, you know, if, you, if you're drafting what's, what's most open, um, you're going to have a functional deck that has a chance to compete and win games. And if you draft the easy way, um, you know, which is you, you take the most powerful cards and you um, just try to put some cards around them, yeah, you, you can win a lot of games but when if you're thinking about um how to maximize your win percentage over your next 10,000 games um i think drafting the hard way results in just a much much higher overall win percentage um and and i want to say drafting the easy way is kind of um it's the default and it's something that i fall into a lot like drafting the hard way is something i had to kind of recheck myself um because when I was or when I do go on a, a lot of losing streaks, I kind of find that I've, I've stopped drafting the hard way and reading signals. And um, I'm not like taking flexible picks early. I'm taking cards that I really want to play and just sticking with them. 
Um, and that's not the kind of drafting that that I advocate for, but I, but I sometimes find myself um, in that position. So a lot, for a long time, my relationship with Eternal Draft was very, very casual. Um, I would just hop on and, and have some fun. And then when I heard about the draft championship, I really wanted to get my uh, qualifying points for day two. And so I played a lot of Echoes of Eternity. And um, I didn't really feel like drafting the hard way was a was a big payoff. Like it's it being able to read signal signals. Um, so being able to figure out what the person next to you is drafting and avoid that will always be helpful. Um, but drafting the hard way in Echoes of Eternity didn't seem to be like the skill that was separating um that was separating me from like the best drafters um now i think that echoes of eternity was much more of a drafting the medium way format where there were two to three really really powerful archetypes um and you could take cards in those archetypes and then just kind of fill in around them and that was a perfectly viable game plan and it may have been optimal in that format um but in really in formats that I think are, are enjoyable, the deep complex ones are usually draft the hard way formats, where if you stay open um, and just draft the deck that is um, being underdrafted at the at the table, um, then you'll always come away with a good deck. This wasn't the case in Echoes of Eternity because you could end up in I think it was Purpose, I think was the really the bad three one. faction. Yeah, the really bad one that like. Yeah, that could have been the open one, and I just wouldn't have moved into it, like because I didn't think that deck would lead to a higher win percentage. I think I thought that forcing a time deck would just lead to a higher overall win percentage in that format. Um, but then when this format came out before the the pack changes, um, I started to draft the hard way again, and I and really saw significantly better results um, because I think that we could really build decks. Um, Definitely more so before the the pack changes that kind of watered everything down. Um, but when I wrote the article, I was kind of like, Argent Depths is is our dominaria. Like all of these decks are viable and um, supported, and these draft decisions are interesting. Um, and figuring out what color your opponent isn't drafting, um, it's still a payoff. Now it was an even bigger bigger payoff before the changes. Um, you're kind of hugely rewarded for that now in a way that you weren't in the previous format. Um, and so that's why I decided to, to write the article was because um, I didn't think drafting the hard way was the best way to draft an Eternal um, before, before Argent Depths. Um, and it was almost like drafting the hard way was a level up that I had when I played Magic that I had to give back you know, when I started Eternal Drafting, like this is a thing that gave me this huge edge in magic. Um, because uh, uh, to, to be completely honest, for a long time, I, I paid attention to so much draft content. Um, and I, the, the decks that I was building were probably hiding a lot of my gameplay flaws. Like I was probably beating much better players, um, you know, when I wasn't as good just because I was drafting, um, drafting functional decks. <clears throat> Excuse me. Sorry about that. I kind of, I, I got off track. Can somebody get me back on? Uh, 
Well, uh, how do you think that uh, drafting the hard way applies to the current format that we're in? Because this is a different format and arguably a much less well-balanced format than before the draft pack changes. Does that affect uh, how much you want to stay open in, during pack one? I the, the absolute best thing that can happen for me in pack one is to be committed to one color and then just open to whatever packs two and three um <clears throat> so packs two and three give me so my drafts these days you know in packs in picks one through four one through five um i am trying to take flexible cards i am taking siphon or paladin because it goes in all of my justice decks um and but i am certainly much quicker these days to abandon my first four to five picks once you know picks five through ten you start seeing symbols like the, the the cards, the symbols that produce two influence. Because when a player's in that um, in that faction, they're probably not passing those, you know. Um, so you, when you start to see the symbol, the signals five to ten, um, what I try to do hopefully is move into that color that's the most open, and then figure out what my second color is in packs two and three. Um, because if you can, if you're if you figure out the most open color in pack one, you get all the best cards from pack four. Um, and packs one and four are just significantly better than two and three right now. Yeah. 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 That makes sense to me. Um, get like, you're not going to get a whole bunch of payoffs from pack three. Actually, you might get payoffs in pack three, but you can't count on it. Whereas you can pretty much count if on it, if you have identified the open faction in pack one, uh, you can pretty much count on getting a few good cards in pack four, at least. Um, so I think it's probably, I don't know if this is true for you, but I think it's more true than ever that having one strong faction that you're committed to and then being open to your second and or third factions, um, is a strong way to draft. Like, uh, I often find myself because I'm pretty more comfortable drafting fire, having fire as definitely a faction that I'm playing by the end of, of, uh, pack one. And then who knows what else I'll be. I might be Skycrag or Rakano or, or Stone Scar, but it doesn't matter because packs one and four are fine. There's going to be enough fire cards that I'll have a deck. Yeah, right. Oh. Sorry, Patrick. Um, yeah, one thing that I, I guess one piece of actionable advice for drafting the hard way in this format, something that that I've been doing. So if I'm in time, like picks five to 10 tell me that I should be in time. And then in packs two and three, it's clear that time is not open. Um, in my head, I'm not I'm not abandoning time. I am doing my best to just pick one color out of packs two and three, and kind of holding on and then taking all the time cards in pack four. Um, so even if whatever I'm uh, drafting in pack one is completely cut off in packs two and three, I generally am not then like abandoning that color and going into two new ones i'm trying to pick all the time cards i can the playable ones even if it's cut off um and i think you can kind of get away with that with some like pause for reflection metal you can fill those gaps in um but yeah i'm just trying to find as many playables as i can if i really do think i've identified which color is going to be open in pack four um oh. I want to point out that if 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 people are learning to draft the hard way, which we which we've not always we've talked about drafting the hard way without using that terminology before, which is just staying open, staying flexible. 
Uh, if you're learning to do it and you're used to drafting to an archetype or you're used to committing after your first couple of picks, it feels super scary. Especially yes. in Eternal, where it can feel like all of the factions are being cut off simultaneously. It can feel like you've made a huge mistake. Yeah. Yes. It Drafting the hard way certainly is scary. So, um, like, I would consider myself... A veteran drafter um so when i'm just not seeing any time cards at all in packs two and three if i'm confident that i've drafted the hard way and time's just going to be open in pack four i will still go through with that game plan um <clears throat> but it's certain yeah it really is scary because you have to abandon the cards that um that you already have and just kind of trust if you've read the signals correctly that the rewards will come to you later on um, and one of the reasons that drafting the hard way, um, even if you identified the open colors like in Echoes of Eternity, it wouldn't be obvious, you know, when, when you open pack four, like, oh, I'm really getting paid off. You didn't feel like you were getting away with anything. You know, if you figured out what the open color faction was, I feel like in pack four in this in this format, you know, it kind of feels like you're, you're getting away with something um, because your deck will just kind of fill itself in. But you have to draft the hard way so many times for you to kind of trust that process, you know, that it's going to work out and yet your deck will, um, you'll be able to find the pieces that you need. Yeah. And I, I think a few important things to remember or highlight is like, especially in this format after these draft pack changes, as we're saying, I think what we're trying to say is not that you can't draft the hard way now that packs two and three are so bad, because you still can draft the hard way and get paid off for it. It's just made like the process a lot scarier. And it's like you learn a lot later in the draft that you were correct in drafting the hard way. Because I think one of the there's a couple interesting things about this format that relate to drafting the hard way. And one of these is because it you sometimes are struggling with playables um it's easy to not want to abandon your first couple picks because you so quickly you're just like oh geez i'm not i'm this is going to be a train wreck i'm not going to have a deck um but part of the thing with drafting the hard way is if you're fir first off if your first couple picks are flexible they're just more likely to make your deck. And then secondly is if you are able to read the signal, even if your first four or five picks are good cards, if you've managed to read the signals, you're still able to abandon them. And especially if then the rest of your picks could be a single color, kind of do that process you were talking about where you then get your second color from two and three and then get rewarded in pack four. And so like the whole process is very scary because you really don't know until the last pack whether you've made the choice, but it's still possible in this format to abandon your first few picks and come away with a good deck if you're reading the signals and sort of, you know, and stick to your plan. Um, yeah. <clears throat> Um, yeah, I agree. I mean, so I, I do think that drafting the hard way is still something that's it, it's it's rewarding in the, in this format, and it will be rewarding. It's 
it won't hurt reading it, like trying, trying to draft the hard way, but it is more rewarding in some formats than others. And in the formats in which it's most rewarding to draft the, the hard way to um, figure out what's open are the formats where you're building decks instead of just piles of cards. Um, so when, when the format is supporting a bunch of different decks and all of those decks are generally competitive, you know, they're, um, Sure, some one might be, you know, some might be better than others. That's just going to happen. But generally, if you identify the open two colors and you move in, you can have um, you can have a competitive deck. And so drafting the hard way, the more viable actual decks instead of just piles of cards there are, the more drafting the hard way will be will be rewarded. Um, and I think that in this current format, we are a little bit going back more towards now piles of cards rather than like we are still building decks it, it's just not um to, i don't think it's to the same degree that it was you know a month or two ago um so yeah it, it's definitely not as rewarding as it as it was previously but definitely something that still um that still will improve your win percentage yeah yeah and then the other thing that i wanted to highlight about sort of how you're describing drafting the hard way is like that flexibility and how there's this weird tension in this format where so many of the rares especially are these like very hard to cast two color cards and it's very easy to see them and be like oh this is a good card um and then picking it and then really screwing up your draft because though you've picked the quote-unquote most powerful card in the pack you did not pick the card that is most likely to make your final deck list which is this weird yeah. tension it it certainly is because the the number of cards that you know it's quote-unquote correct to force um like pre-nerf tele i think um like that that card i think was good enough to force severin um probably good enough to force um mave yeah i would try real hard and um the the felon one the four eight that makes a killer uh three one killer every turn like that card also might be good enough to force but um but those cards are very few and far between i think like the number of cards the, that card has to have such a big impact on the game um and those cards are out there, but I think the more experienced a drafter is, um, the higher the their bar is for, you know, quote unquote, just forcing it or just saying like, yep, I open this. This is going in my deck. Um, cards like that are out there. They they do exist. A lot of the times it's going to be incorrect to do that. Um, but I think Maeve and uh, Plasma Primordial, I think is the name of it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Two examples of ones that, that, yeah, that that might be worth it, but it has to be that kind of power level that it just if it doesn't it just wins the game on its own. You know, if your opponent doesn't answer it, it just wins. Um, if you're forcing a, a a color or a pairing, it ha it should be for a card that is that kind of power level, that it just kind of wins. Yeah, yeah, that's so you, interesting because I feel like with those those cards specifically i've just been burned so many times that i'm starting to get very gun shy like i still will first pick them but i am so quick to abandon 
those cards now just because I've come to realize how hard it is to force colors in this format because you can get so punished with playables. And then yeah. also, you know, the problem with those cards is are they very powerful? And so it's very rewarding if you can play them, but they are triple in both of those colors. So it's yeah. you can't even really splash them. So you, there's just like the percentage that they actually make your final deck is so low that I don't know. They, they're for me kind of become like the classic trap card where I'm like, yeah. Yeah. They're the, like the anti drafting the hard way. Um, so if I, if I first pick mate, like um, I first picked Maeve earlier today, like, and I wouldn't first pick Maeve over um, like a really, really good uncommon. I don't remember if there were any really good uncommons, but you know, if if nothing else in the pack is extraordinary, I'll kind of take the chance um, and and hope it works out. But Maeve and the the Felonar are the only two. Like I wouldn't do that for the um, the Praxis one. Um, like I can't even remember what, what the other ones are. Um, but those, yeah, are the, the anti drafting the hard way cards um, <laughs> where. You can do it, but it's it's one of those things where if you're going to force it, you might not find that many playables, and it's it's going to be, um, yeah, the, like the better you already are at draft, the greater your chance that you're going to be successful with that because you know how to put those pieces together and what you can get away with. It's it's just it's correct to force such a small percentage of the time um, that like I'm I'm a big believer that in you should have your heuristics or just your default settings then look for reasons to to vary for that from that um and so like your default should just be don't take two cards and two factions like uh, in your first pick unless they're they'd have to be crazy powerful um in order for me to do that otherwise i'm always or i'm trying to prioritize cards that um yeah that I, that i can splash that go into go into a large number of decks um and one thing that I, I just want to say, one reason I think people get stuck in drafting the easy way and um, get stuck in that, get stuck for so long is because it's self-reinforcing. Um, because when you take just like the rare and you build your whole deck around around that, the rest of your cards probably aren't going to be very good. And so the games that you win are probably going to be the, the games where you draw and play that rare. And so it just reinforces this idea that that's all that matters. Well, like clear, I'm winning the games where I cast my rare. So clearly that is the way to win games. Um, when somebody like me would say like, no, like just draft the hard way and have a curve. And uh, <laughs> like, that's just a much better way to, to win games long-term, but it's really hard to see that because the newer you are to draft, the more likely you are to just take the rare and put that in your deck. And the more likely your games are to be decided by that rare because the rest of your cards might not be very good. Or if you're, you know, if you're newer, you're, we all start somewhere. You, it sure helps to have some really powerful cards if you want to beat more experienced players. Um, so I think and, it's really difficult to see the benefit of drafting the hard way. And it's really, it's difficult to break out of drafting the easy way because it's so self-reinforcing. And, uh, and also when you're newer at the game, the games that you lose will often 
it, it'll be difficult to analyze why you lost those games if it wasn't to a powerful rare. Like if you get out tempoed or your opponent's uh, like overall deck strategy was just a few percentages stronger than yours or something like that, and you lose and you're new at the game, it's very difficult to to understand how your opponent got to the point where their deck was able to beat yours, ex unless they beat you with a powerful rare that they were unable to deal with, you know. Um, it's much more subtle trying to build a good curve and consistency and then like the entire drafting process that led to the deck that that your opponent beat you with. You don't get to see any of that. And so it's impossible to replicate. But if someone drops a Tavrod and kills half your board, you're like, well, next time I see Tavrod, guess I'm taking it. <laughs> yeah. And one of the reasons that I wrote It's Time to Draft the Hard Way and, um, and I wrote Be Boring was... Because I, I think that a lot of people, you know, when I watch stream and listen to the chat, that people have th this idea that the people at the top of the leaderboards, you know, we're, we're constantly playing these these rares and these mythics against each other. And that's not how, like, a lot of the games play out. That's not, like, what we're doing when we're playing against each other. We're making sure we have two drops. We are trying to make sure that our early picks go in a high percentage of decks. We are taking cards that... Um, trying not to take conditional cards or cards that are narrow, you know, um, that these are the things that we're actually doing. Like, these are the things that lead to success. And like, yeah, you are going to lose games to, <laughs> to rares. That is just part of what you sign up for. Um, but it's, it certainly feels worse. And they, they, um, and you remember them the most, but, uh, yeah, just building, cons but but that's not how we're winning most of our games, I think. You know, most of the time you're just curving out and trying to play good cards. Um, it's, you don't win most of your games with rares. And I, I think people get that impression. Um, and so I kind of just wanted to some, dispel some myths that, like, that's really not what we're doing. Like, this is what we're doing. We're, we're trying to draft the hard way. We're filling in our deck rolls. Um, and if, 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 both of our decks function and we reach parity and you're against a player who is of a similar skill level and they draw a rare. Yeah. That's going to break parity, but that's just going to happen sometimes. So, um, there are just, so, I, I think that limited that drafting is so, so complex that the, like you could just study it for so long and just never master it. Um, and, and I have a deep appreciation for the, the skill that it takes to draft well. Um, and I kind of wanted to share that with people because I think that there's a lot to drafting um, and people just don't know. Yeah, it's uh, you're making you're making uh, in a typical draft. Something like something like 30 very important choices, and then there will be a few a few picks at the end of each pack where it's like, no, no, I'm not playing any of these cards, but all of the other picks, uh, are huge decision points. Um, and I, th I think it's easy to go on autopilot a little bit, especially once you're a little bit comfortable in a format and you're pretty sure you know what the good cards are. Maybe you've got a couple of archetypes under your belt. You're at the point where you're drafting the medium way. Um, and, and, and you're, uh, and at that point, it's easy to kind of give up and 
take the wins where you can get them and not push to make the absolute best decision you can at every pick. But it is rewarding because uh, that's what brought me back to starting to win a few games again in this format as I started to think about each pick and, and, and think, uh, is this common that I'm pretty sure is is good because it's got a good space in my mind. It's in the good category. Is it good right now? And if the answer is no, let it go. <laughs> and I started doing that more and suddenly I started winning again, which is, you know, telling. I think that um, like a conversation that you and I had on, on Discord recently, Hats, I think perfectly emphasizes um, that it's not all the rares that matters. Like we think really hard about our 27th or 26th card. Um, every card is in our deck is really important. And you posted a list and you had two frosts. And I said, how like, oh, how was the two frosts? And you said something like, oh, I wanted to draw it. And in, in, I always wanted to draw it. I was always happy to have it. And I said, oh, well, would you play a third? No. So it's like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like, yeah no, I, I, this card was great. I always wanted to see it. But no, I think a third copy is incorrect. And like those are the those are the dials that we're trying to figure out. Like I don't play a lot of decks with frost in it. I'm probably not going to draft too many decks with frost, so I'll just ask hats instead. And and that's what's kind of funny is you can have a card where you're like, no, I wanted to draw this every single game, but I don't think it's correct to put a third in. And that's a very nuanced view of a card, you know, to, to a card that you just wanted to draw as many, like in, in every game that you could, but recognizing that now three is probably pushing it. Yeah. Um, that like these, these are the things that at least that I'm thinking about when I, I'm building my, like, these are the edges that I'm looking for. It's not in, you know, rare drafting and trying to figure out, um, how to play that rare. It's the, um, I think the things we try to figure out are how many frosts are correct. How many of the white the one um, time interaction spells, like, can I play? Um, like, those, those are really the questions that, that we're trying to answer. Um, so, yeah, because there's a big difference between two and three frost, and it doesn't seem that way when you think that only the rares matter. Um, but it, it does matter a lot. Um, and I think when you play against, um, like, the example that I wrote in um, Be Boring was if you just played against LSV every single time, what would happen? You would realize that every single card in your list is very important and i think that when you, you know you're playing against when you're a newer player playing against other newer players um it's it's hard to learn to see the impact that like playing dead cards like having dead cards in your hand isn't that big a deal if your opponent also has dead cards in their hand you know but when you start to play against um like in limited like when i queue up against like into patrick chapin he always has very just like um clean fantastic lists he's using all of his power every single turn um and when you're in those matches every single one of your cards really matters um mm -hmm. you know, your last card slot might be i put in snare in my deck today because i wrote about in snare and people disagreed with me and so i put it in my deck and i watched my creatures just die <laughs> to this um uh, flame blade reformation killer just killer just got passed around and Rebuke would have saved me, but Ensnare was just in my hand. Just, so um, so these are the kind of things that, like, I, I think when you really are trying to, like, you reach Masters and trying to join the top 20, you're really trying to find out which 
you realize that card number 25, 26, and 27 are really, really important. Because if you're going to beat people who um, who put in a lot of time and who, and who really understand this game and are great at it, you're going to need all of your cards and you're going to need a little bit of luck to go your way. So that's... I- yeah. I wanted to I wanted to mention a, a specific case of 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 this of the twenty fifth, twenty sixth, and twenty seventh cards being important because I'm I'm fairly comfortable drafting and playing aggressive strategies, um, and I like playing like Skycrag and and uh, often I'm in a position where I can take a lightning strike or a biting winds, and if I think that I'm playing an aggressive deck then I might take a card that can attack over a lightning strike. And I think that that's one of the... And I don't know if it's always correct. It's something that you sort of have to feel out um, sometimes. Because a lightning strike is a purely defensive card. It's good in a racing situation, um, and it's good when you're defending, but it doesn't do damage to your opponent unless they're attacking with a relic weapon. And if my deck is purely trying to do damage to my opponent, if I'm not expecting to do to be in any sort of board stall, and I'm always ex- and I'm I'm pretty sure that I, I'm generally going to be able to put out more damage on the board, um, then I'll either cut lightning strikes from my final deck, or I just won't take them during the draft at all. And I don't know how many people will do that because lightning strike is definitely a quote good card. Um, it 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 kills large units efficiently and its removal and it's very it's technically definitely very good um and i usually will pick them up uh during the draft and then cut them from the final deck if i have a very aggressive deck uh it's uh and i think that helps that kind of decision is the kind of thing that helps my win percentage sometimes because those are some of the decks that are the strongest or the ones where i take out the things that that don't contribute to the main game plan um but it feels like i'm doing something wrong when i'm doing it even if it definitely is the right decision and a lot of these kind of decisions do feel that way if you're not used to doing them the first time i cut a lightning strike from an aggressive deck i was like this can't be this can't be good <laughs> lightning strikes definitely a good card what am i doing and then i went on to win seven wins with that deck and i was like i, I think there was just never a time when i needed a lightning strike because i was always attacking good for me <laughs> yeah what's it yeah what's interesting is i feel like as the medium drafter of this podcast like um uh, this is also a thing that I notice in my decks a lot, where I'm still not to- I'm still not very good at cutting the quote unquote good guards that don't fit your game plan, and but then noticing after the fact that I really shouldn't have played that card, and this uh, this kind of got highlighted recently. I had a seven win Skycrack deck, and it was. A little bit go wide it was a really aggressive deck i was playing a lot of frost and stuff but i had an ancient serpent in the deck but like i was saying earlier i never remember what's in my deck so i got my seven wins never drew an ancient serpent so i actually only realized i had an ancient serpent in the deck when i exported the deck list to post it to the seven win deck channel and then i was like Oh, there was an ancient serpent in this deck. 
thank God I never drew that card in this deck. <laughs> <laughs> the last that thing I needed was a six power unit with only three strength. <laughs> I was like, that would have made this deck so much worse if I ever drew that. But like, I, you know, it's kind of funny, but I like, I actually find that happens every once in a while when I do, even when you have a successful deck, you can like look back at on the deck list and sort of use that as a learning experience. You're like, what cards of this deck did you draw and you were happy with? And what cards did you not draw? And in retrospect, you're really glad you never drew. And it was really highlighted with this in this one, because it was also my most expensive card. So it was just like right there for me to notice. But I do have that happen to me a fair bit. And um, I, it's just always good. It's, First off, obviously good to get to the level where you can just cut it before you build the deck. But it's also, I think, a good way to learn is to just like, after you're done with the draft, you can look at your list and be like, oh, would this deck have gone better if I drew more of this card? Or would this deck have done better if I drew none of this card? And sort of use that as a learning experience. Yeah, I think sometimes people, um, you know, it comes back to, what are you doing? Are you building a deck? Or are you putting a, together a pile of cards? Because yeah, like lightning, like you said, lightning strike is a great card, but what is it doing in this deck? Like people will say, Oh, this card is good. It goes in, in my deck instead of asking themselves, what does it do in this deck? Like, um, <clears throat> and the answer for lightning strike was nothing. Um, but a lot of people just fall into the mode of like, yeah, this is a good card. So it goes in my deck when really it's, you know, maybe a, a, an archetype that it's not supported. It's just kind of like this random card. Um, so people don't evaluate some, sometimes people don't evaluate cards, um, within the context of their deck as like filling a role. They're just like, yeah, this card is good. And so it goes in. Um, whereas I think you should always be thinking, well, what, what role does what what role does this fill in my deck? Like, what is this doing? Why is this in here? Yeah, um, I want to make sure that we get to this job because uh, you mentioned a specific game that um, that you and I played. I think weeks ago now, but we both still remember it because it was kind of a remarkable game. Uh, did you want to Did you want to get into that a little bit? Yeah. So this kind of goes back to. Um, like, I, I wanted to give people a little bit of an idea of, of what it's like when, <clears throat> like, Hats and I both had our day two qualifier. We, we both spent our time in the, in the top 20, what the games are like when, when we play each other. And I played this game against Hats, um, and I can't remember the details. I can, I can tell you exactly what the game ended up being. The game ended up being I had two enormous Auric officials. And Hats had um, the 4-2 that makes an 0-1. It has charge. It makes an 0-1 sheep every time that you play it. Um, and so that became the game. It was this very long game, and it became, can I kill Hats with my two gigantic Auric officials before I run out of cards? Um, <clears throat> and I didn't. I did not figure out how to kill him before I, before I decked myself. Um, and I think that this is an area for me that I still need to improve upon, which is how do I win games against players, you know, of, you know, you know, similar skill level of, you know, players that I see among, you know, my rank on the leaderboards. How do I win those longer games? How do I figure out how to do that? Um, 
and the reason I'm telling the story is because I want to push back even more on the idea that it's the rares that all that matters, or or at least that there there are ways that you can improve your game even if um, you lose to rares. And the reason that I still think about this game that I lost to Hats is because if if you took Paulo Vitor Domodorosa, Magic Hall of Famer. If you've ever heard him think through his turns, believe me, he is much better at this game than I can imagine being. If like I just sat him down and said, here's how Eternal works, here's Auric Official, here's the situation, I think Paulo finds a way to win that game. You know, he's just like, oh yeah, like I know how to do this. Um, he finds a way to make the most value out of those cards. I think there was a correct way for me to win that game against Hats. I think there was a correct way. I think there was a way that is possible. I was not good enough to figure it out. I think a player of, you know, Paolo's caliber, Huey Jensen's caliber solves that puzzle. And really that is, um, that that's where I feel like I am. Like, I, I feel like I'm a pretty good player and I'm not like a really great or excellent player because excellent players figure out how to win those games. Um, and obviously, obviously I did not. Um, so what I remember from that game, because I don't remember what led to that point, but I also remember the point at which I was making a sheep every turn and you had those two big auric officials. I was only making one sheep per turn and you had two giant units that I couldn't yeah. possibly kill, right? And so yeah. my game plan was to stay alive exactly enough turns for you to run out of cards because we were not at parity. Right. Like you were eventually going to kill me, but you had to do it before the end of the of your deck. And yeah. so what I think happened, and I don't I'm not saying that I am always capable of doing this, but in this game I was, was that I realized one turn before you did how the game was going to end. Yeah. Right? And that was the point at which I started chump blocking very strategically. If you had started attacking with the officials or like forcing through damage one turn earlier, you probably would have won because it was really down to the wire. And uh, and it was in this game, maybe not, you know, the next time we play uh, in this game, I realized one turn earlier what the game was actually about and and chump blocked my way to victory. But uh, when you've got two players who are roughly in equal skill level, you know, we both play top 20 uh and you know, in in the general bucket of of players that that, that play around at, at that level, uh, whichever player just figures out how the game is going to end one turn early often has a huge advantage, and that's what it comes down to. You know, that's the thin slice of 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 uh, of, uh, of decision making. I don't know if what I just said makes sense. The thin slice of decision making. That's, a, <laughs> but but you know no, what I'm saying. Harsh. The the margins that determine your wins and your losses when you're playing against somebody of, you know, of equal skill, of comparable skill, your margin for error is small. Yeah. So because um, I've certainly had games against top draft players, often better up, where I have realized one turn too late uh this game is actually about him attacking in the air or whatever it is uh and if only i'd realized it one turn earlier yeah it was a super cool game and i think it was the kind of thing where i i had to wait a certain amount of time because i think that my life total was like i was on the back foot most of the game so i couldn't just like recklessly start attacking because i could like there was a chance that i would just die. like i don't know but it was a super fun and interesting game 
And I very well could have lost it because, you know, you figured out a turn earlier. I think the reason that I still think about that game is because it was, yeah, it was a rare, but it was making a sheep. The whole game yeah. was these two commons. Um, and and it was it was one of the more interesting, fun games, you know, that obviously I still remember and think about. Um, and so when you think about ways to, to level up your game, um, it's probably not about the rares. It's finding out how to how to win games like that. Like that's where I am. Figure out how to win games like that. And it, and it could be that yeah, I won that game if I figured it out a turn earlier. Um, and so that's kind of why I wanted to talk about that game because I think it was one of the more interesting games. And it wasn't haymakers. It was we played one game where you were trying to kill me. I think life total wise until you weren't until you were trying to kill me by decking me. And we it was this very weird role reversal that we had. Um, which will, will be great to talk about for quadrant theory, but um, yeah, so yeah. that's that's what the margin of error is really like. And we actually both made mistakes in that game, um, like actual mistakes. So I thought it was like a great game where we both did something like we shouldn't that didn't end up costing us. Um, and it was just a puzzle that I didn't solve. And I think a player like Paolo does, and I think Ben Stark does, and I didn't. And so I think about that when I'm like tilted, like, ah, I'm losing, you know. I'm losing because of rares all day today. It's like, well, no, I still have a lot of work to do, <laughs> like a whole lot of work to do. Yeah, I think uh, I think if you take Eternal seriously enough to listen to a podcast about it, um, like like you're doing right now, or uh, watch Twitch streams or anything like that, also just stay humble. Uh, that's something that I try to remind myself of: is that uh, it's very easy to to forget uh, some of the basics. Um, and some of the some of some of the stuff that uh, I mean, there's just a lot of little things. Draft is immensely complicated, as you said, and um, and if you find yourself uh, losing a lot, uh, take a breath, maybe take a, a one day break from the game, um, and 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 look at the things that have been happening to you, and. And say, you know, this is a solvable problem. <laughs> this is a thing that I can learn from, and not just say, you know, uh, this is um, uh, this is, uh, and not just sort of uh, get overwhelmed. Uh, I'm saying this to myself because this is what happened to me last week: is that I just sort of got overwhelmed and started blaming the format and the design of the format. Um, there is always, even if it means playing boring or bad cards a way to uh you know get those percentage points and sort of leverage the experience and knowledge that you have it just might take a form that you're not fam as familiar with because this format is different from last format and that's why we play a collectible card game that changes all the time yeah well i think um that's a good place to end the show i want to thank you so much for coming on shab because i think we hit on a lot of a very diverse a diverse set of things and we talked about a lot of different aspects of draft and how to improve your game and i thought that was a, a really incredible episode um so thanks so much for coming on and sharing your thoughts not only about drafting the hard way but just about improving at draft and sort of all facets of the game oh i i had a blast i i absolutely love um talking about limited so Thanks a lot for having me on. Like, I, I could talk about one of the whole day. Um, it's, uh, yeah, this was a lot of fun. <laughs>
I so hope- if I just want to plug your articles at the end here. If you want to read Shab's articles, which are very, very good um, and well-researched and thorough, uh, go to eternalwarcry.com, and they're in... Hats. You yes. go to the Farming Eternal Discord. Yes. You check the Shab article channel, okay. and you click on a link to go right. to Eternal Warcry. Okay. This was, this was like a... A T-ball is set right in front of you to knock out of the park here. The double plug. I, um, I, I, I set up a blog, which is a sentence I can't believe that just came out of my mouth, but life is weird. Um, it's called Let's Talk Limited. Um, I am working on that Quadrant Theory article right now. That might be up tomorrow, um, depending on how tomorrow goes. So... Yeah, uh, let's talk limited on WordPress. But yeah, just come to the Discord. That is the best place to find me, is in the Farming Eternal Discord. Um, I've been hanging out there a lot. Uh, feel free to uh, come and ask me questions. Uh, there are no bad questions. I really like uh, helping people and teaching people. So yeah, I won't always be right, but <laughs> I'll certainly give you my opinion. So once again, thank you to all our patrons for making this show a success. And for those of you who are not patrons, a reminder to give us a five-star rating or review on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. You can join us in in our Discord, that is Farming Eternals and Shab's uh, article, Palooza. There's a link in the show notes. Um, and then finally, a thumbs up to all of Raven Dragon's Reddit posts. And don't forget to send in all of your seven-win deck lists you do this week to farmingeternal at gmail.com. And remember to keep on farming. Have a good night. Have a good night. Goodbye. Have a good night. Bye.